Hello, folks, and welcome to the Defiance Podcast. With me today, I've got Andy Johnston, one of the founders of Seven Mile Advisors, a very successful boutique investment bank based here in Charlotte. I've watched Seven Mile grow through the years, um, and and Andy hasn't gotten to be too important to still grab a drink with me every now and again and let me pick his brain. So we're going to do just that today uh, for the podcast. Happy to do it. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us, Andy. Um, for the folks listening who don't know Seven Mile, can you tell us what you do and maybe walk us through a little bit of your history? Sure. Uh, so we are an investment bank. Uh, we work with companies and investors to help them raise capital, uh, sell their businesses, and in some cases, find another business to acquire. Uh, we got our start in 2008. Um, it was myself, Leroy Davis, and uh, we quickly added a third partner, Trip Davis. Um, we all worked together at another investment bank here in Charlotte. And prior to that, I had been in consulting at Accenture. So I guess my personal history on that is I started out in consulting, um, probably stayed in it about two years too long. Uh, I think I knew after about five years I wanted to do something else. And to me, investment banking looked very challenging, uh, probably much more exciting outcomes than consulting. Um, so we, uh, in 2007, uh, Leroy and I decided uh, we could probably build a better shop. And uh, we went out on our own in 2008, which was exciting times, mm-hmm. you'll remember. Uh, <laughs> Great time fun, to start Fun time for investment banks, <laughs> yes. Uh, so we, we knuckled down. Um, I think we knew a little bit of the uh, market was peaking in 2007. We saw some pretty incredible valuations and deals go down. We were like, wow, I don't know how long this can last. And uh, I think we were mostly motivated by our wives who told us to just stop complaining and go do it yourself. <laughs> Uh, so we did, and uh, we formed the firm in 2008. Uh, we were very fortunate to have a client that had some office space in town that let us camp out for free okay. in the Johnson Building downtown. Um, and they were an IT staffing firm focused on uh, Bank of America as one of their big clients. And believe it or not, a lot of space opened up as that <laughs> client had uh, a, a, rapid, a rapid reduction in demand for their services throughout I, that year. I, I can imagine. I, I, I was in consulting at that time, and luckily we had just sold the company to Red Hat. So we were... The timing couldn't have been better. <laughs> the timing couldn't have been better. We were yes. we, we were actually growing through the recession because we were, even though Red Hat's business was growing more slowly than it had before, they had 20 offices in North America and we had three. So yeah. it, was, it was quite a quite yeah. a game changer for us. But that was, that was a very rough and, and scary time. Um, just because I know your background, you went to Duke for undergrad, and was it an engineering degree I did. that you got? I did. So I thought I was going to be a car engineer. Okay. I'll, I'll confess. I went to Detroit in the winter for a job interview, and that convinced me, along with a trip to Kokomo, Indiana, to wow. a union-run uh, parts and accessory plant okay. uh, to interview for a job there. And those two experiences taught me that I did not, in fact, want to work in the car <laughs> industry. I'm much more comfortable and excited about the end product than I am working inside that industry. Sure. So I had a little bit of a dilemma on my hands. I was an engineering major. Uh, the, the path I thought I was going to go down was not looking that great. And my cousin worked at Accenture at the time, uh, which looking back now, I realized that he had literally, other than the brand name that he worked for, had nothing to do with what I ended up doing. But he said, if you don't know what you want to do, you ought to look into consulting. And he was right. Well, I think Accenture and McKinsey, there's a handful of companies that you can't go wrong if you can get I in would and agree. start your career there. Yeah, I would agree. The people were by far the best part. Uh, the experience was fantastic. Um, you do quickly get exposure to a lot of companies, a lot of opportunities to 
you know, do hard work and, and get immediately rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. I, I like to travel. Um, I was fortunate enough to get some in-town client work here in Charlotte with the big banks, but I also got to stay in New York, uh, Austin, Texas, um, uh, Northern California, a uh, little bit of time up in Stanford, Connecticut, and uh, worked with amazing people, clients and coworkers. Um, but the projects got, uh, in my opinion, uh, less exciting. I think if you're a shareholder of Accenture, you thought they were great because they became big multi-year outsourcing contracts and you know very big predictable projects but Mm -hmm. for the people doing the work that involves a lot of uh outsourcing uh the time zones uh are tough when you're working with offshore teams Mm -hmm. and um you know i I don't mind hard work i don't mind the the long hours but when your heart's not in it it's it's hard to put that much energy into it yeah consulting is is in my blood but it is it is not for the faint of heart and you need to love it still think a lot of what we do is consulting um, so my, that was my background. My uh, other partner, Leroy's background, was at um, PwC, but he was in transaction advisory services and the more pro services side. It was still accounting, uh, and I think we we talked about that uh, he and I quite a bit when we came to the decision we we're going to start our own firm, where we know what customer satisfaction looks like. We know we have to produce deliverables. It's a very demanding project that we undertake. A lot of times, it's emotional. You're selling your baby. You're mm-hmm. taking an outside capital for the first time. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to have a project plan. You have to keep your customer satisfied. Um, you have to uh, check the quality of your work endlessly. Uh, there's really a, a high price to pay for making a mistake in our line of work. Uh, and you have to keep your people happy. You have to recruit mm-hmm. really amazing, talented people. And at the end of the day, you have to staff up the project. And uh, as you scale, which is what we did uh, over time, you have to put your trust in people to you know, follow policies and procedures, think on their feet. Um, and, and in many ways, I, I still feel like we're in consulting even though we put the label investment banking on it. Absolutely. So, uh, so, so I believe decision point was the firm that you went right. to after, after Accenture, what, what type of deals were you working on at uh, decision? any particular industry or geographic coverage? It or? was mostly it services companies, uh, middle market size, you know, geographically, they really didn't have a focus. They most of their folks were in Charlotte, uh, but the clients were all over it services. Like, you know, it's, there's a lot of offshore there. So we'd have, mm-hmm. Uh, if not a client, a, a counterparty that would be based in India, uh, Eastern Europe, South America. Um, so I, I liked it um, because I had this consulting background. I wanted to do investment banking. Um, I'd started the CFA program. I was actually looking at business schools and, and applied and got in uh, that summer that I got the job at Decision Point. And I basically had about 60 days to decide if I would take the business school offer or stay with the new job with the new firm. Um, also had a baby on the way, made it a little easier to decide to stick around uh, with Decision Point versus drag my wife and newborn on two years of fun and adventure uh, on the business school route. Um, But yeah, it was uh, a great learning curve. Uh, Met some great people. Obviously, uh, my two partners now, uh, I met there. And uh, that that to me was a good introduction to the field. Um, Think on your feet for sure. And yeah, I I looked around. Leroy had been there since 2000, so so had Trip, my third partner. Uh, I joined them in 2005, um, and I could see pretty soon um, that you know there definitely was, in my opinion, a, a better, more I would call it exciting way to, to run a business. Um, and look, and the, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but does, does Trip have some private equity background or so? Or, he, he was in wealth management uh, okay. before joining Decision Point, but you know it, when people ask you know our background, we can trace it back to before 2005 and say we've really in some respects worked together since 2000. That's so. great. What about do either of them, did either of them go to grad school? 
Uh, Leroy got an MBA from Wake. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Trip had done some graduate school work, but uh, not all the way through in, in the healthcare space. Um, so yeah, and then I, I completed the CFA charter. So my, I tell myself that's what I did instead of going back to get an MBA. I crammed for tests and packed my head full of knowledge for, uh, unfortunately, about 80%. I'll, I'll never actually get to apply in real life. But if you need a, uh, you know, me to solve a complex formula without referring to a calculator or do a portfolio allocation, hmm. somewhere in the recesses of my mind, I have that sitting around in my, uh, in my noggin. That's great. Yeah, I've got a couple friends who did grad school, uh, did an MBA, and then also uh, did that exam. And they said I, it was harder doing the exam than, than the, I mean, it's more I wish, work, I think, for the MBA. I mean, so, so part of my uh, reason for doing it is, you know, I was an engineer and I, I did not have to take finance. I really didn't take any business classes to get through that program. Mm-hmm. Um, while I had great work experience, I did not have an accounting background and felt like I, I needed to brush up on that. So I, w- I certainly went overboard. I did not need this level. <laughs> but <laughs> It was, in my mind, a, a good way to get some, uh, you know, academic underpinnings to the, you know, real world of investment banking that I'd have to go into. So, so for someone who wants to go in to, to investment banking, it, should they be thinking about an MBA, do you think? Or? I, I definitely think so. So I would tell you, I spent kind of 18 months to two on fruitful years trying to break in while in consulting. And I was getting the feedback that I was a way overqualified analyst and an underqualified associate at that point. And there are, for sure, if you're thinking in the traditional Wall Street firms or large-scale middle market banks, you need to go get an MBA if you want the easiest path in. Not that there's an easy way, but the traditional way is they go to MBA schools, they look for strong recruits, they look for corporate finance majors, they look for that work background. Uh, And that's still true today. I think that is a a traditional way to do it. our firm, we, we've hired a, several people without that background. We've been successful making that work. But I, I think for most firms, um, that is the traditional background of the way to get into investment banking. Should they be? Should someone thinking about investment banking and they're an undergrad, should they be doing a business degree or does it matter less and they should think about the MBA? Yeah, I, I don't think it matters as much. I would definitely say take at least one corporate accounting or corporate finance class just to have an understanding of how to navigate a balance sheet and an income statement. That's going to be true no matter what you pick. But I think at undergrad, um, it's, it's cliche to say follow your passion, but boy, is it very clear to me that your major um, should you should not try to pick your next 25-year career by your major. You, you would do far better to pick a major that reflects things that you enjoy learning about mm-hmm. and projects you like working on, and there will be jobs waiting for you. So if you want to go to investment banking, uh, yes, would it be easier if you had a quantitative degree than art history? Maybe. But if you show well and you, outside of your classes, you do things that demonstrate you're interested in corporate finance, they'll find you, get a good GPA, they'll give you a shot, show up, I mean, the entry level is investment banking, like a lot of jobs. It's hard work. It's follow mm-hmm. through. It's showing up on time. It's anticipating problems and solving them. It's being detailed and diligence. And, and I think a lot of majors have that. And so you'd be better to excel at a field that really you enjoyed in school and mm-hmm. then let that you know come through in your job interview. Well, it seems like, too, it isn't just that you're an investment. It, it isn't just I'm an investment banker. You're probably going to become an investment banker who focuses on certain yeah. things at some point in your career. So if you've got a technical background or a marketing background That's or right. some other things, it's probably I helpful. think, you know, we, we happen to be pretty industry focused. I think a lot of investment banks are more generalists and they would tell you it's it's a hindrance if you come in saying, well, I only want to work with clients that are in this one space. That's yeah. all I know. And that's all I want to work with. They'd be like, well, that's great. But that's not what we do. A lot of folks 
Uh, also, they, they just respond to demand. A lot of analyst programs move you around based on where the demand is, and it's okay. too early to specialize, I think, at that level. I think that's great advice, whether someone's looking into investment banking or, or not. Thank you for that. Sure. Uh, so, so you talked a little bit about it. You and Leroy are at Decision Point. You're working on good deals. It's 2007. Valuations yeah. are high. You mentioned that your wife's pushed you over the edge, um, which seems seems to be a theme. Um, <laughs> In a nice way. If she, from when she listens to this, I want you to know it was <laughs> the best advice I ever got. Um, I also had the luxury of a wife with an amazing job. She was uh, on her way to becoming partner at Accenture. Oh, wow. So we had uh, a really good cushion to fall back on. I was free to have a, you know, take my entrepreneurial leap into the world of self-funded growth and that's uh, the, the alarming lack of benefits for, you know, single and, and two person companies that are out there. Oh, the health healthcare back then was a was a disaster. Yeah. So get healthcare. I think you had to have five employees at a minimum. I, uh, you know, it, it was beyond the reach uh, of what we could, you know, cope with. So yeah. I didn't have to worry about it. My wife had a great job. She's very supportive. And it gave me the comfort to, you know, walk away from a, a known quantity and, and mm-hmm. step out. Now, I do have to say that so we could see in 2008 things were probably going to slow down. And this is a little bit of a mentality of like, so you either wait to get the zero bonus or get let go when times are tough, or you just go out and do it on your own terms. Gotcha. But had you told me at the beginning of the year that Lehman Brothers would go under Wells Fargo. Bear Stearns would disappear. Yeah, that, you know, these major household names would go down the tubes. I, I think we probably would have maybe thought twice. But honestly, looking back, it's the best thing we ever did. And I'm glad we did it. So, um a mentor was started in March of 2000, which was when MicroStrategy reported yeah. some errant earnings and it precipitated the entire dot-com crash. And I think a lot of great companies are started when when times are bad. Um, I, I think so, too. I, I think you have to think about Satyam, right? You mm-hmm. remember they had a very yep. similar, just this, you know, uh, Ponzi scheme of accounting that when the tide goes out, you, you definitely can tell. Yeah, yeah look, I, I think... Would, would we have had the same path if we, you know, started this in the middle of a bull run and a bull market? Uh, sure. I, I'm, I'm very glad that we did it the way we did. It was uh, focus on the same clients and relationships, uh, try to wait for the market to come back, know that a lot of, you know, weak companies will probably get purged out of the market. Like mm-hmm. a, a year of soft growth to no growth really uncovers who out there needs uh, some help and, and who's probably going to go under, especially... When they're services companies, you know they, they tend not to have more than 12 months of runway ahead of them in terms of revenue visibility. And if you're, uh, you know, it's too hard to let people go, or you're just unwilling to, um, they tend to fall under their own weight uh, when the market gets soft. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things is is cutting people in a services business because they are, yeah. and especially in tech services, these are very skilled people. You're you're worried about cutting people, and then their friends end up leaving or start looking, and and so there's there's a lot of loyalty, and and for good reason. You want to carry some amount of bench, um, but not too much. And sometimes you're just an optimist, and you say, "I've got thirty percent of my people on the bench, but I've got this one project that's going to come through." Yeah. And then before you know it, if you know your, your margins have shrunk, you're not. You probably also during a recession are finding people paying you more slowly, but you're still paying your employees on time. Yeah. And, you know, you think about trying to go find someone looking to raise capital or, you Mm -hmm. know, go out and embark on an M&A transaction. We had a lot of distressed deals. Uh, Hey, I think it's a good time to be a buyer, but I don't have any capital. Can we go raise some money and go buy companies at the same time? When a lot of companies that would be able to restructure end up going chapter seven because they can't get the debtor in possession lending in in 2008. It it was a brutal year, right? Mm -hmm. And then everything 
frankly, just stopped. So normally, you know, there'd be a list of buyers you could approach who'd be interested in any company that you would take out. And, and almost to the last one, they'd say, look, we're just not doing deals. Like our board is on total lockdown. Look at our stock price. You know, our competitors mm-hmm. are falling left and right. We have no idea what a normal deal looks like right now. We're not sure if our lender is going to be around next year. So let alone, are we willing to go out on a limb and go do a transaction? So I, I will tell you, actually, the first um, one of the first industries I went out to try to find deals in was what's called default management for banks. And it was companies that serviced foreclosures, bankruptcy, default actions, which it's a crazy world, um, but they were having the best years in decades in those times. And we tried to follow the money as best we could. We tried to find some good opportunities in there to raise money, work on deals. But it was kind of a sign of the times that that was a huge growth industry was handling, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the default processes for banks. Yeah, it was, it was a fascinating time. What what drove the ultimate decision? I mean, was there a single point where you and Leroy had looked at each other and said, yes, we're doing this or... So uh, it was highly tied to bonus payouts, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, I think so. Over the course of 2007, um, I think we saw some deals get um, you know, more and more frothy. Um, not to get too technical, but we really wanted to open a broker-dealer uh, licensed firm, uh, which our old firm did not believe was necessary. And we'd lost a pretty good client over the issue. Uh, it was out in California, uh, which is probably you know first to pay attention to things like that. And I think we kind of knew at that point, like if we want to do something, we're going to have to put a plan together and, and go do this on our own. And so at the beginning of 2008, uh, we kind of girded ourselves to do that, you know, sat down with the wives and said, this is our plan. Are you OK? And we're going to be out there on our own. And then li- literally our, our first official business planning meeting was sitting down with a couple blank pieces of paper because we could not take anything with us from our old job. We had to leave everything behind and, and literally just write down a list of people that we should go call and a list of companies that we should be sure to contact and start from there and just start filling pages and pages of paper with. Well, and I want to talk about the, the first couple clients, but, but first did, did you have gardening leave <laughs> at, at decision point? Uh, we, we had like a cooling off period for sure. And we, we needed some time anyways. So yes, we, we, you know, parted ways. Uh, we, uh, you know, let them know we're, we're leaving, we're working on a transition plan with existing clients and then, um, yeah, and we, we really couldn't work on, uh, the, the, sep- the arrangement they wanted was not to work on any previous client engagement. So we gave them, a, you know, where things stood with different client mandates, transitioned over those people that were going to run them. And then, uh, that was it. So then Leroy and I pretty much had a, a, literally a fresh piece of paper to start from at that point to build a practice around. Yeah. We, we hired a handful of investment bankers at level and the, the garden leave, Range from two to six months, as I, as I recall. And yeah. I think if you get a managing director, it may be even more like a year. Um, I, I think that's right. Banks. I yeah. think that's right. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting concept. Um, it's usually tied to some kind of you know if you want your full bonus, you'll you'll go into this kind of quiet period, garden leave. Um, and it's because you go tend to your garden, right? Uh, exactly. <laughs> I'm supposed to be out in the garden uh, planting, apparently <laughs> pulling weeds. Yeah. Uh, so no, it was you know we we made our piece and then uh, really just rolled up our sleeves and and got to work. Uh, b- biggest uh, initial effort was trying to come up with a name that not uh, had not already been taken by someone else, including a URL that was still available. Which well, I, I tell people you need a name that meets three criteria. It's number one, you need to like it. That's hard <laughs> enough. Number two, you need to, you need to, you know, no one else can have it. And number three, you got to clear the URL. That's right. And even, and even now, 
in the social media world, you got to be able to get a Twitter handle. The, the hashtag. <laughs> hashtag. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> so can only imagine. So, so in, in, my, in my world of technical services, as you probably know, tip, most companies that start a, a company like a level or are, you've, you've done some work with Austin Rosenfeld, like a Macedon, they have in, in mind the first client that they're going yeah. to, to get. And in many cases, you've already got it. Yeah. We, we started level in Asia Pacific with two clients already lined up. Hmm. So, you know, we, that, that made it a lot easier to start the business, but obviously with the gardening leave, with the tight non-competes that, that you feel like are, sounds like they're enforceable, you really can't do that. So, yeah, I, I, I think it was, do we have ideas of who we'd like to get signed up first? Absolutely. But uh, on, uh, to be truthful, we, we were very cautious not to do anything like that before we left. I think yeah. we were concerned about getting the deals that we were working on closed out, uh, you know, leaving things in, in good hands and then uh, going out when we were ready with a new message about what we were doing and not trying to muddy the waters in between. So, mm -hmm. yes, there are companies we in our minds, you know, wish would hire us right out of the gate. But the other thing about investment banking is it's very uh, opportunistic. So people always need to spend money on IT. There's almost always a, mm -hmm. a technology need. We can get to know the best company for five years and they just may never transact. They may never raise money. They may never sell, buy another company. And it is great that we know them and it's, it's an awesome relationship. But so you sometimes just can't pick your spots. You have to be, uh, you know, a little more proactive about reaching out to folks and, uh, oftentimes we meet a company and get hired by them in as fast as 30 days. And, and other companies, like I said, it's five, 10 years that we've been talking before we finally get to an arrangement. Do they ever hire you for pure advisory work or is there, yeah. do you only do it if there's a transaction? No, it happens. Test? It happens. Yeah. I mean, so truthfully, the way a lot of investment banks earn an engagement is to give away free advice. So we sit down countlessly uh, with people to just say, here's how we see the market. Here's where you fit in. Usually we get a little more roll up our sleeves as you get closer, but uh, oftentimes we're being you know compared against other firms in a bake off, and part of that in our mind is demonstrating value, uh, you know, analyzing them, collecting information, feeding it back to them with our view of how things work. But yes, yeah, sometimes people want to do transaction planning. Sometimes people want uh, to prepare for something down the road, and they just want some help getting ready now before it's uh, too late. So how do you think? they think about, do I hire a strategy consulting firm versus an M&A advisory, you know, an, an yeah. investment bank? How, how do you, because you, you could, in theory, you could hire a McKinsey to do this, or you could right. hire a Seven Mile or a Harris Williams or. I, you know, I, I think you're probably less inclined to hire an investment bank if in your mind, this is not a business you ever envision uh, opening up the ownership, right? It's different if you're going to let management buy in or, or, you know, promote people up and it comes with equity. But I, I think people who ultimately in their mind know this is either uh, my, my business forever, it's my lifestyle business, or mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, one day ride off into the sunset and my uh, employees are just going to buy me out when I'm never going to run a process and go have to bring in outside money or talk to a buyer. I doubt they would ever pay money to an investment bank to come in and really give them a formal, you know, round of feedback and, and help them prepare. Um, I think there's a ton of value. I think when we come in, we put on the uh, perspective of a buyer, an outside investor, and we give them feedback from that perspective. And then we can counsel them based on the practicalities. Look, we, we know this is what the ideal state looks like. This is where you are now. Here's a practical way to get pretty close to that, knowing no one ever reaches the ideal uh, outcome. That, that makes a lot of sense. So how long does it take to get the first client? 
So, 08, uh, we opened our doors, I would say, around March or April. I was guessing March. February is bonus time. Right? Exactly. That's when all of our when investment check, banker when hires. The, uh, <laughs> when the bonus hit the checking account is when everyone felt pretty frothy about walking away. Um, it, it's a great question. So, I think we signed up our first client, and if I recall correctly, it was a company down in Atlanta called Niche Cubed because we uh, did the kickoff meeting, like the initial client meeting in person in their office, and we picked up our first retainer check from him, from the CEO. And I was trying to think of some grand ceremony as we drove to the nearest ATM to deposit it before we even got back on the road to Charlotte. But we ultimately just decided it was ceremony enough to put a check in the bank That's at great. that point. So that probably took us six months uh, to get going. Is, is six months a typical sale? I mean, I know you said you sometimes it's five to 10 years, but what yeah, would you classify I think as a, I, ideal? I think that's about right. I mean, goodness, I would have been more than happy to sign up every client I could handle right out of the gates, but that's pretty unrealistic. And I, and I think in our line of work, six months is a pretty realistic expectation that tends to snowball. I mean, look, 2008 and nine were just really terrible markets. So we knew lots of firms that were firing half their staff and not you know honoring recruitment offers, those kinds of pretty dramatic moves just to cut headcount, and there were deals dying left and right. So that was a those are tough years to measure a typical startup time. So, how long before Trip joins the firm? Uh, he got the call uh, midway through '08. Uh, so he he had left on almost the exact same timeline that we did. He just he had also decided he wanted to go somewhere else, and he went down to Florida, where he's from, to join a firm that he had known and got, and it was a great firm called Hyde Park Capital. That, that's how I met you guys, was John Valentine yes. uh, referred me to, to Trip because they had worked that's together right. at Hyde Park. That's yeah. right. And so, uh, you know, I believe Hyde Park pulled the 50% reduction about halfway through 08, and Trip called us up and said, hey, I, uh, I, I this is uh, not working out like I hoped. Um, or what are you guys up to essentially? And we said, great, come, come join us. And, and you had had your deal by then, or you could see that you were about to close. Uh, we we had line of sight to our first client. I, by no means did we have like an assured closed deal or anything like that. So look at, at that point, he's a, he was a known quantity. We're very happy to have him come join us. I think Leo and I were probably too, uh, uh, closed off about what we were doing in the, in the spirit of like confidentiality and secrecy before, we left, and then you know, after it was clear, we both were leaving, and within a week of each other, it was it was pretty dramatic, and not not coincidentally, it was right after bonuses were paid out that we we made our moves. Uh, so he came and joined us, and by the end of '08, uh, he was our uh, the third partner in the firm. So a lot of people, I don't think, understand the significance of a bonus in investment banking. I think the bonus is a, the the way most employees or, or workers yeah. think about bonuses is just different. Can you talk a little bit about the so bonus, when you're, the size of like what percentage yeah. of your overall comp? And when you're an entry level investment banking employee, a bonus might be 20 to 30% of your base compensation. Uh, very, very quickly that slides up to closer to 50%. And then as you climb the ladder, the bonus is uh, oftentimes the majority of your compensation. For senior folks, it is three, four, or five times their base salary. And uh, as you become a senior person, it's also almost entirely driven by how much revenue you can generate. Um, that is measured by clients you sign up and deals that you run. Uh, and then you become practice leaders. So you're, you're kind of sitting on top of a pyramid. It's not unlike other professional services firms. You typically have you know, teams underneath you. Uh, you oftentimes start with the lowest person's bonus first. You have to keep them happy. 
And then if you're having a great year, you know, you end up having a lot more left over to pay to the folks at the top. I always say he or she who gets paid last gets paid most. That's right. It's, a, <laughs> it's an ownership mentality. Exactly. But but one of the things I think that, uh, that there was a lot of backlash against bonuses that were paid during this time in 08, 09, d- during the height of the financial crisis. Uh, to me, it seems like it isn't really a purely discretionary bonus. There's just an understanding that I'm getting this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the surest way... But it's called a bonus, but it's not really... I know. It's, but yeah. the surest way to make someone quit is you zero out their bonus. Like, that is the ultimate Wall Street firing, is you never fire them. You just give them a zero bonus and let them read between the lines about what that means. So... Yeah. I've, I've heard about an investment bank on the East Coast that's had a few people leave because bonus time yeah. <laughs> didn't quite live up to expectations. I, I will say, so one, one of the things we wanted to make sure... Um, we did with our bonus program is we tie it directly to the role you play on a project um, for for a client engagement. And it's very clear that percentages are are spelled out and and we're very transparent about that. So I personally don't like the big black box approach to that, which a lot Mm -hmm. of investment banks do, which is keep everyone happy, keep doing the right thing. And then once a year, we'll all have this very tension filled moment where we sit down and describe what your bonus is going to be. And then nervously wait the next week to see if you show up to work or if we just cause you to quit and go walk across the street. Well, not not that it's the same industry related to it, but um, on the show Billions, have you watched that yes. yet? Yes. So have you watched recently? They went through bonus season at the yes. two hedge funds. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's uh, I, 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 Look, I get it. It has its merits. Um, I, I think for us personally, it was just better to say, look, if you do the following Here's what you're going to get paid. Yes, we have a discretionary bonus on top of that. But I, I tell people, if you are counting on that to be the majority of your compensation, it's not that's not how it's supposed to work. Yeah. And, and you get why the discretionary is nice, because some people work their ass off and they work well and yes. just the, the dice bounce the wrong way. Exactly. And you need to be able to reward them. Exactly. And, and look, we, we get it, too. And that's why we have a we still have an annual bonus, because part of the reward is doing the right thing. You know, you may not have had a direct role in a project, but did you come to them and say, look, I encountered this buyer, this investor through my client experience. Um, I don't really have a stake in the outcome. I'm not going to get paid on it, but you need to go talk to them. Or I think the right move is to go do this. We want to encourage that kind of behavior versus mm-hmm. everyone's a mercenary. And if it doesn't pay them, they're not going to do it. So, so you get the first client six months in. Um, how, what, what was the nature of the next few? I know for, for Chris and me, our first five or six clients at level were just people he and I knew. Um, yeah. but then we finally got one that came purely from a referral. Um, and, and that was somebody that we didn't actually know and we were able to close it. And then especially when we got our first outside sales rep, that, that was a really big deal when you right. finally get an, and then getting an inside rep to close their first deal. There were these different stages of significant sales. Um, can you talk about, did you have a similar pattern or was there, were there, or what are the kind of milestone sales that you remember making yeah. where you felt like the game changed? So, um, for sure, the first couple of clients, it was off of our network and people we'd either done work with or had mm-hmm. called on earlier. Um, we did have an amazing and, and continue to this day to have an amazing referral source, a gentleman named David Goldstein at Credit Suisse, who runs uh, a big practice for them and their technology group. Um, he became, um, through just a great relationship, uh, the guy who would pick up the phone and say, look, I just left the CEO's office. He wants to go to a deal that I'm not going to be able to work on, but you guys should go meet him. Um, we got one of those calls early on. I think it was 2010. He had just met with the CEO of, at the time, the largest uh, IT services company headquartered in China. And 
he called us. It was like maybe noon or one in the afternoon. He's like, hey, I just had this meeting here in New York. Um, this guy's going to be here till tomorrow morning. He flies back to China. You need to fly up and meet him. And we did. And they became a client, and we got a deal done with them. Uh, one of our earliest clients was, if you know TJ Everly, uh, was Nuvion. And mm-hmm. we had previously helped Nuvion uh, raise some money, uh, buy a company, and then down the road, it turned out to be the uh, the company that Highsoft ended up buying. I was going to ask if the Chinese tech services firm was Highsoft. Yeah. Okay. Got yep. it. So uh, that was one of those. Um, you know, y- you and Nuvion was what about three hundred people at that time? They That's were they had right. gotten a fairly good good size, if they, I recall correctly. Yep. Yep. We helped them. And do they a were little very tech industry focused. They had I a lot of work in Bank of America, which Highsoft like. Highsoft actually got their start. Uh, by carving out, if I have the story right, IBM of Japan had set up a lot of bank back office systems, and Highsoft bought that to jumpstart a financial services practice. Um, did the delivery out of China as like a low-cost alternative to Japan. Um, they had some venture capital backing, a mandate to grow, uh, and so we became their U.S. Uh, investment bankers to help them find the right acquisition target. And then uh, all that can be stemmed, though, back to this phone call from David Goldstein saying, get get on a plane to New York and come meet this guy before he gets on a plane and flies back. And thank goodness he did that. And that's one of those relationships where uh, I bet Leroy probably put in 100 hours of talking to David about different things, giving him free advice, helping him out, preparing you know, with uh, market data and those, those kind of things. Uh, and David pay, repaid us with that introduction. And uh, those are the kind of referral sources that you, know, you live for in this kind of uh, industry. Can, can you um, give a feel or just a, a little description about how an investment banker charges fees, how you make money? Obviously, yeah, d- lots of different business models out there, but I think it's probably pretty standard for investment bankers, yes. correct? Yes. I think ours is nothing uh, that you wouldn't find at other firms. So there's an upfront retainer, uh, which is uh, like a consulting fee. It's usually just a, a fixed fee of some kind. Maybe it's a once a month or it's a one-time fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gets the engagement started. And then we're working for a transaction fee. We get you know a single digit percentage usually of the transaction value. Um, and if we're on the sell side, it's for the total value of the company. If we're raising capital, it's for the dollars raised uh, for the business. Is it a higher percentage for raising capital? It, it usually? usually is. We would argue um, that's usually much tougher. Um, and the dollar amounts that we're involved in are just smaller. Uh, and then on the buy side, um, it's a very similar model. We're getting a percentage for the value of the company that's acquired. So for us, it's it's a lot of um, fees at risk. Um, we're not the ones writing the check. I, in many cases, wish that was the case where I could buy someone or sell on behalf of my client. But uh, we've had a few situations where literally the day of closing, we get the phone call that the deal's not going to happen. Someone's had a change of heart and they're just not going to close the transaction. That has to be the worst because I've seen you working on processes before. Yeah. It's, it's There's no nothing joke. you can do. There's nothing you can do. And, it, and, and, and clearly your retainer isn't why you have a no. team of five people working 100 hours no. a week. And, there, you know, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's a commitment for sure, but no one's getting rich or, or, you know, this business model does not work on retainers. You need to close transactions mm-hmm. for this to make sense. Are there ever clients where you say, you know what, this is just so good that I'm not going to charge a retainer? Or do yeah, you- it, it happens. And uh, certain, sometimes in competitive situations, you have to be flexible with that kind of model. Um, our number one concern, though, is when you end up in that kind of relationship, I am just a guy throwing an idea at you. Um, there's no real penalty for not doing a transaction. Mm-hmm. Weekly status calls become skipped every other week. I can't really make time for that buyer meeting. I don't know if I'm going to get to that request they put in. Because at the end of the day, we're just kind of like, yeah, it's nice if it came together. 
but that's not really a, a process. Now, there are other folks who uh, won't pay a retainer, but it is an assuredly going to be a transaction, and that, that could make sense for us. Got it. Um, so I've heard that most bankers, well, all bankers prefer sell side versus buy side. First of all, is that correct? And is the reason because there's way more ways to lose a buy side deal? Uh, <laughs> um, generally, I'd say that's true. Uh, I think I think that is also true that if you ask most bankers, they would say generally that's the case, uh, primarily because of the likelihood of a deal closing. Mm -hmm. So if you're a buyer, there's almost no consequences to not buying a company, right? You could hire a banker, you might be out the retainer fee. They could show you 50 amazing ideas. You could explore 20 of them. You could take meetings. You could put term sheets out. And if none of them close, you're probably going to be fine. You know, your job mm -hmm. is not uh, going to be really that much different. And, and, you know, your personal net worth is probably not going to change that much. Um, it's a little different if you're working for a private equity backed group and they've got an exit plan. And part of it almost requires a deal get done to hit the valuation they're looking for or to line up with a buyer that they have in mind. On the sell side, uh, by the time we get hired, it's very clear, you know, who we're working for. Our interests are highly aligned. And it, for the, a lot of times, we're working with middle market companies. They're owned by management. Um, they, uh, we are making a life-changing amount of money for the owners. So the, the likelihood of a deal closing there is much higher. Um, and we get more control. So we, we are in a process at that point where we control the seller. We control who gets access to them. We you know, generally have a lot more power to negotiate with investors and buyers versus on the buy side where kind of our only move is to walk away. And is, uh, b with both of them, do you, do you require an exclusivity agreement? Or? We, we do. Um, we've cooperated in a handful of times. We, we had a partner in the U.K. Uh, that we did some joint advisory work with uh, that was very helpful um, with a, you know, a few clients that had a European focus or where European buyers were likely to be part of the equation. But, but generally, it's very tough uh, to work with someone uh, opportunistically or not exclusively. And the way we put it is, look, you don't want to be in a mode of uh, this is yours, mine, and ours. And now I'm in competition with the board and with management, and I hope I get to that candidate before they do. And we want to be able to tell them all our ideas. If you think about this uh, concept where there's some buyers who might want to do this deal that I don't want to pay you on, well, if I expose you to one in my generating ideas phase of the project and, and proposing a list of candidates, I don't want there to be a risk where the CEO says, you know what, I actually know those guys. I'm just going to call them. Great idea. I'm not going to pay anything, but I bet you they'd be really interested. And I'm, I don't know why I didn't think of it, but I'm going to go call them now. You brought them up. Like that's, or they think they thought of it, right? Yeah. That happened, I mean, and, and it's not nefarious. It's just human nature. Yeah. It's and people intend to go into these things with you know the best uh, of intentions. Sometimes yeah, you, you get into this question halfway through the process of like, oh, well, um, I, it seems like uh, we should do some measurement of effort here. Like, was this harder or easier than we thought it was going to be? Or did it die to make the introduction? Or did you make the introduction? It just doesn't become very productive. Uh, what it incentivizes us to do is to claim the phone book. And this is what people hate investment bankers for doing, which is at the end of a process, they want to know the list of people that they're responsible for because part of our engagement has what's called a tail. At the end of a process, if it doesn't mm -hmm. close, uh, well, there's a list of companies that we're still owed a fee on if a deal is consummated with. And, you know, everyone wants that list to be fair. We agree. We usually spell out the terms of that. But, you know, what investment bankers do sometimes that people really hate is at the end of a process, they just throw this huge list of company names out there. The client's totally caught off guard. Like, what are you talking about? And I didn't even know half these guys were on our list. And like, well, it is. That's who we talked to. So if you close a deal with one of them, you owe me money. And so just, just to clarify that the tale is 
there's a period of time right if they do consummate a transaction after ending the engagement with you you still get paid is it right. a full fee typically or do you it, st- it, is it, there a sliding discount yeah or? sometimes you have um uh, a declining fee or something like that and most of the time up front you agree on what's a fair uh list there so um, again, we, we just don't want to have an incentive for us to propose an idea and someone says, yeah, let's keep that off the list for now. And then they, they go off and, you know, try to get a deal done, uh, without engaging us. So I, yeah, look, 12 months, 18 months, uh, between 12 and 18 okay. is, is typical. I, I don't like to use the word broker, right? It's kind of a dirty word in our industry, but mm-hmm. in a lot of ways we are brokering a deal and a broker doesn't want to get caught out, uh, when a transaction comes about as a result of their work. One of the things that I've, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who have sold their company after working with an investment bank and, and they just, a lot of them are very frustrated because they end up selling to a company that they already knew. Yeah. But it seems to me that there's also, your argument must be, well, we brought value in bringing other people to the table and it drove up your fee. I'd say over half the time we are hired when there is a buyer at some level of engagement. So Mm -hmm. inevitably people's perception of where they are with a buyer is very different than what we would tell them is the reality. So having a really good series of conversations with a senior executive at a large global systems integrator about the interest level in buying your company is not the same as having a capital committee at the board of directors propose a LOI with their letterhead and signature of the CEO on it. Yet a lot of people, I think, in their minds, had developed a great relationship with someone, believe they have them engaged in buying their company. And yes, we, we are coming in to kind of you know start off on third base and declare a home run by making it you know from there to home. But the truth is, it is a pretty long road to get from business interest to M&A interest to getting a deal consummated and across the goal line. Well, and I know there must be value in, in doing the process because almost every time I've raised money or, or sold a company, people say, I don't want to run a process. I don't want to be yeah. part of a process. So there's oh, a reason buyer, that they buyers don't Buyers will tell you all the time, oh, you don't need to run a process. Yeah. Why, why would you do that? You know, or, <laughs> or even worse is, I, well, if you do, I'm not interested. Like, you know. Yeah. Somehow I'm I'm in this exclusive club that people can't talk to other people. I, I've I've, to me. I've heard that a couple of times, and I've said then then I'm not fucking selling. You. <laughs> like we're done. I mean, like you don't want to be in a process. That's fine. I like. There's a lot of things I don't want to do. I will but it's tell part you this. <laughs> I, I right. Like most of the time, buyers just don't pay more than they have to. It's you yeah. know rationally speaking, they wouldn't be in business. They wouldn't be where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, their their incentives are very different than the sellers. Most of the time, you have a, a professional corporate development team. They may have an advisor. They certainly almost always have a corporate board of directors or board of advisors, all of whom are going to ask tough questions about a deal, none of whom want to pay more than they have to. And almost universally, the only thing that gets people to pay the most amount they're comfortable paying is the threat of the deal going to someone else or uh, you know, knowing that there's a process, that they're going to get compared to the market and they have to be competitive if they want to keep the deal. Um, a lot of our businesses are people-based businesses. They're consulting they're outsourcing. Uh, a lot of times cultural fit is a big part of this. So it's not always price. Sometimes it is good home for my people, good home for me as an owner, as a manager, for my customers. Um, so that's part of it. And so price doesn't always win. But you better believe that that buyer has no intention of paying more than they have to. And the threat of a process isn't really uh, as much of a threat of them walking away as it is forcing their hand and, mm-hmm. and making them strategic in the valuation they're willing to pay. That, that's great. I, for what it's worth, I advise anybody who is selling their company 
yeah, to, to, to think about it, at least talk to a banker and, I, and, and, and pick your brain. As you said, you're sure. going to give them some thoughts for free. Hoping I, I have given them. people advice that the offer they currently have from the bidder is the best I could ever hope to get for them. And their wisest move would be to sign, you know, and press firmly on the signature block when they sign that agreement. That we'll give them that advice. Look, I, I look stupid if I go in saying, of course, I can increase that offer. And I know I can't. And that's not worth it to, you know, potentially disrupt a, a company's process and an outcome. So I, I want to tell someone where there is an opportunity to move a deal up. I'll let them know if it's a gray area where it's a 50 50 toss up. I'll, I'll tell them that. But for sure, the best way to make a process, uh, a deal move ahead is to tell them, look, I'm I really want to get the deal done with you. I'm here as an advisor to help make the deal happen. Um, but we're going to push things on a, a timeline to make sure, uh, one, you don't distract the company with you know a prolonged process and two just keep them honest don't go give them an excuse to retrade the deal down to get you close to the finish line only to announce the new worser terms knowing that you have no other options if they don't believe you have another option there's almost every incentive out there as a buyer to kind of test the bottom and see what's going to cause you to walk away one of the things that that, that i think about in this thinking about should i run a process is I had Greg Brown on, who runs the Charlotte Angel Fund, uh, yep. last week, and um, he talked about all the different ways to value companies. And it, it, it's very clear, and especially going to business school, we learn like there's yeah. 20 different ways you can value a company. And frankly, for a lot of companies, none of them apply. The only real way to value it is in the market. And so, if you're only talking to one company, it's not as if you can say, "Oh, great, here's my cash flow," and there's no assumptions in this model, yeah. and here's what I'm That's actually right. worth. It's you need to get out in the market and see what the different viewpoints are and and frankly my guess is even the entrepreneur doesn't really or the owner of the company doesn't know what their company is they, worth until they have usually heard um, some amazing stories at cocktail parties they've read the headlines about deals that are so outlandishly unusual that they grab headlines and get written up in financial press or technology uh, articles and they anchor their expectations sometimes in in a level that's just not sustainable with the market so yeah oftentimes we are for example, talking people down from where public companies trade. So unless your company is at that scale and publicly listed. No, you can't use Cognizant yeah, or Accenture's multiple. It, it <laughs> is exciting to think about it that way, but I would view it as a ceiling, not a floor. Mm -hmm. um, and it, also, look, so, some people start a company, and I think this is true psychologically, knowing that they always wanted to sell it to some buyer. Um, especially, I think, in marketing services, there are a lot of people who left a big ad agency thinking someday I'm going to sell this back to like that, that will make it to a DPP to or Omnicom. A, yeah. Like or I'll, Omnicom, I'll know yeah. I'll made it. I will have made it when Omnicom or Publicis buys this firm. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's always been their dream and that's great. Uh, but we can tell you, we talk to their corp dev guys all the time. Um, they see a hundred deals a week come across their desk by no means. Are they going to chase one down and overpay for it just because uh, there's an emotional attachment to it. So even if you know who the buyer is and they're interested and they're at the table, uh, a process always helps get a second opinion, uh, take a look around to see what else is out there. And for a lot of people, they just haven't done that for a living, right? They've been busy running the company, hiring people. I would do the same. It's very hard to be outward looking when you're focused on especially a high growth business. You just don't have time to check in with potential buyers and get a temperature read from them and talk to previous sellers and look at deal comps. We're doing that all the time. And we can very quickly give you an assessment of you know, your, your range of outcomes looks like this. Um, your company measures up well on these fronts. It, it needs improvement on those fronts. Uh, and, and if we were to go to market, this is what we think the outcome would be. Um, I also think a big mistake people make if they run a, a selection process with bankers, um, it's very easy to win an engagement by promising you 
the highest valuation one has ever heard. Like if all you did was stack bankers up by the price they quoted you, you you'll make a huge mistake. And did did you read about? Uh, I, I'm sure you read a lot about the Uber IPO. But yeah. did you read about the banking process when they yeah. hired Goldman and Morgan, and they both came back with 120 billion dollars yep. as yep. The, the value? It's look. It it is. Um, I get why you have to do that. And there's a lot of emotional reaction to this valuation opinion. And it is it is the ultimate question of a banker. What is this thing worth? Right. And we want to be straightforward. And I would rather lose an engagement because we were too conservative or set expectations too much in the middle of where the range is than promise you the one percent outcome and be uh, watch you get totally disappointed by the actual bids that come in. And realize that you'll never get this range that we promised you at the beginning of the project. Because you I walk away from it and you've wasted six weeks. I'll tell you what exactly. Yeah. Either someone just won't do the deal, so we've all wasted six months of our lives, we'll never get back. Or, uh, you know, worse, uh, they want to terminate you on the spot. They're like, you don't know what you're talking about. I was misled. And I'm going to try to get out from under this contract now because it was very clear you're just trying to, you know, promise me the moon and this is never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and look, there are legitimate reasons when things are different than what we understood them to be and or the market doesn't respond the way we we hope. But I, I see this, you know, in competitive situations where we get told like, well, your value was not as high as the, as the guys we you know ended up hiring. I'm like, well, great, make them buy the company for that. You know, yep. if they're the ones writing the check, or drop their fee to zero if it falls below that range, and watch what they say yeah. in response. Now you mentioned single digit fee size. Is that three, uh, to, single fl- digit. three to five percent? Yeah, that, typical, that, that's or? about right. That's about right. If you're raising capital, it might be a little higher. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say um, there are some situations where someone wants to raise that initial round of angel money. I want to go out and get a half million, million dollars. You, you, investment bankers, you don't want that. There's, I agree. I, I'm sure you heard. You know, angels want to get to know the founders. They want to get engaged directly with them. And at that level, you're probably doing more of a relationship investment than you are. A, a, you know, It's not based on an Excel model or a fancy presentation that we pull together. Now, when you first started out, did you have a minimum fee? That you would not not sure. percentage, but like total dollar amount. In like our minds, not, we yeah. sure did. <laughs> yeah, g- generally we write in a minimum dollar amount. You know, and this uh, is when you started. I want to talk about when you started. And, yeah, and how initially that's we were saying two hundred fifty thousand. Okay. Um, I think you know in two thousand eight and nine, if if your check cleared, we were pretty happy uh, to start working with you, and we would chase deals down that you know we we needed to get some wins on the board. We needed to get really out there in the market. Um, but, but generally for what we do when we were starting out and we we're kind of lean and mean 250 made sense, we've moved it up since then. Um, and, and we would say a lot of times the size of the deal, uh, compared to our fees really determines whether or not they're willing to hire us. If our mm-hmm. fees become just, uh, you know, more than 10% of the deal value, it's highly unlikely they're going to hire us. And that's just kind of good logic if you think through it. What was the biggest challenge for you guys in terms of growing that that fee yeah. size from 250 to where you are now? Uh, so we're in a very uh, reputation-based industry. Uh, we focus hard on building a good reputation, but that takes time. But when you're first getting started out, no one's heard of you. Um, you know, you have to work long and hard to raise awareness, get in front of people, uh, get access to better deals uh, at higher values, and and start moving the needle up. Um, we, we were very fortunate. We got referred in by, I mentioned David Goldstein. We also mm-hmm. had a really good, continue to have a great relationship with a couple of, uh, uh good attorneys in, in town and McGuire Woods, uh, especially, um, helped us get connected to a fantastic organization, uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia of all places called TEC. Um, and that was one of our largest initial clients. They're an environmental engineering firm. They had a lot of work coming from federal contracts. Um, so they're, 
typical project for them would be uh, the Navy wants to go dredge uh, a harbor or move some ships around. Uh, there has to be an environmental impact study done before, during, and after. Um, these guys are the environmental engineering firm that comes in to do that type of work. Uh, they'd scaled up the business. Um, it was it had a great run. Um, they had uh, an ownership group that was ready to do a transaction. And through our McGuire Woods relationship, we got invited to the pitch. Um, we drove up to Charlottesville, uh, crammed like it was a final exam to <laughs> put on our best show. Uh, did great. Got hired by the guys. A great, great group of guys. Really fun group. And um, we ultimately sold them to an Australian firm called Cardno. Uh, in our mind, that that deal was really uh, putting us on the map. It was it was a you know biggest fees we'd ever gotten from a client. Um, I, I, I don't think they disclosed the transaction value, so I, I can't say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Super complicated. Um, they had some top secret classified work, and Cardno was considered a foreign entity. They had to go form a, a board of uh, top secret cleared, you know, former military officers. I've got to imagine, though, for an, an Australian company, gets a little I less know. scrutiny than a And it was Cardno. Car- Car- I mean, it's Asian the craziest country. thing. Talk about, like, going through the motions. I mean, Cardno is uh, a, a super acquisitive. The fact they're Australian, it's... A, but it, it, it had that. It had an ESOP, uh, an employee share ownership mm-hmm. program. Uh, for those of you who don't know, ESOPs have an incredibly complex layer of rules around uh, approving the sale of a business that an ESOP owns a stake in. So you have trustees who have to follow a lot of guidelines. They have to agree with their own valuation. So there were a lot of issues we had to wrestle with um, to get that deal done. Uh, but for us, that was that was our first, uh, you know, I think, major win. I think coming off... Um, that transaction announcement, I feel like we got a lot of attention and got on the radar of people who I think recognized that, you know, while we, we were good guys and I think we had some good deals in our history, um, I think that, that put us on the board. From, and what year was that? Oh, man. I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I, I'd have to look it up. I, it was around like 2011. Okay. And uh, that time frame, 2010 so or 11. It occurs to me that not only is it important that you attract good companies to, to go sell, um, but also probably over time you build up a network of, of potential buyers. Yeah. Would you say that you have more repeat buyers that are financial buyers or strategic buyers? Uh, so for us, it is strategic. So we had this industry segment focus that, you know, for the first almost, you know, eight or nine years, it was almost exclusively, uh, you know, IT services, engineering firms. There are a handful of repeat buyers in that space that are, uh, very acquisitive, um, that are a match from like a size perspective. Uh, and, and if you look at our tombstones, uh, there are certainly names that pop up uh, again and again. Proficient, by far and away, is our number one repeat buyer. Isoft, you've mentioned. Isoft did two deals. Accenture's done three. We actually did an advisory engagement with them. They bought three of our sell-side clients as well. Um, and that, being my old firm, you know, for me, is a little special. And... Um, and then, you know, whenever we pull out a candidate list for someone, I would say 80% of those buyers we have worked with, closed a deal with, negotiated terms with, uh, and at a minimum shown, you know, a dozen plus deals to and gotten to know the deal teams and learned from that what they like, what they don't like. So, yes. And then every deal's different. There's always some new name that pops up. Financial sponsors, for sure. Oftentimes they show up in our processes through a portfolio company. And that, that's always interesting. A company you never heard of. They just went out and raised, you know, twenty, thirty, fifty million dollars. All of a sudden, that makes them a very viable buyer. Whereas previously, they were management-owned; they weren't looking at deals. They either didn't want to or didn't have the bandwidth. And now that they have private equity backing, all of a sudden, that that changes their profile in terms of being a, a likely buyer for a deal. Now, I've I've heard that if 
if there's a venture capital, if it's a venture capital backed company, they, they may try to run things that look like a process or do some things that an investment maker might do. But is that different in private uh, equity or do I have that completely? No, wrong? I think that's a good point. Um, so I do think one of the major roles the board member from a private equity group plays is helping the company uh, stay abreast of what's going on in the market. So everything from just networking with buyers to, yeah, almost running a process, like testing the waters, exploring potential deals. Oftentimes they still bring in an investment bank, but they've done a lot of the groundwork themselves. Um, it's a pretty good symbiotic relationship between private equity and investment banking. A lot of times they like working with the bank that brought them the deal initially. So if they found it through a bank, they figure that bank knows them better than anyone else. They'll probably work with them again on an exit. Mm -hmm. But many times, you know, they're, they're very accomplished deal guys themselves. They're out in the market all the time. And, and like us, they know a good deal and they see one, right? So if a strategic walks up and says, hey, we've been watching you guys for a while. Your board members are keeping us abreast. They're, we're on common boards together. Uh, we want to put an offer on that would make you not want to talk to other people. They're smart cookies. They they know what that looks like. No need to pay five percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish they would sometimes, but yes, it happens. And uh, you know, look, we also get invited to come pitch people, share ideas, and you know, I think they are more willing and receptive to that um, approach of seriously considering if it's the right time to go to market. And they listen to that input. You know, they get a lot of banks approaching them all the time with that pitch. How many transactions are you working on? Not you as an individual, right. but the Seven Mile working on at any given time. So our firm right now has about fifteen sell sides uh, that we're in the some phase of. You know, everything from getting ready to take to market to, you know, should sign and close a deal this month. We have about four buy side transactions where we have um, a couple of private equity back clients that have us working on some pretty specific mandates. And then I would say two clients that are very, very specifically looking for growth capital right now. So all in, it's you know around 25. And how many conversations do you typically have to have to close one deal? Would ah. you say? I know it's all over the board. Yeah, I think a typical deal for us, and I don't think this is different in other industries, you probably start out, if you're selling your company and you're big enough to get on the radar of most strategic buyers, you might have a hundred names you want to approach. And I bet 25 to 50 of those are private equity and the rest are strategics so They're operating companies that you think would be a good buyer. Um, you send the idea out, uh, most banks and we're, we're no exception have what they call a teaser. A teaser is a, a blind profile. You've reduced the company down to one or two slides worth of information. You don't use a company name. You use code words to reference them, but you need to be a little more uh, revealing about the numbers, the, business, uh, industry focus, maybe the, the geography, things that a buyer needs to know to make a decision about whether or not they even want to take a, a second look at something. Who picks the name? Ah, uh, <laughs> the banker usually brainstorms and thinks they have a very clever and uh, unique name that almost immediately gets shot down by the client is offending them for some reason. Uh, we've had clients use their favorite brand of vodka, uh, the name of the restaurant where we met, um, we have one banker in our firm who likes James Bond movies and he's been rolling through the titles. We right now have a project quantum and a project specter and a project skyfall okay. underway. Um, we were, I, we were project seven at a mentra for Harris Williams cause we were on the seventh floor of their building. So oh, there you go. it was really easy for them to remember who we were and for us to I remember. Think, <laughs> I think it's a good exercise for liberal arts majors to really like flex their creative muscles on that one. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. So, uh, what's funny is that banker, he, you know, 
did the same thing I did, which is he's putting a lot of thought into these code names. He'd roll it out with the story behind it. And his batting average, I think he went like 0 for 4, where the client was like, no, that stinks. Or uh, 30 days in, they would just have this like change of heart. Like, I know we agreed on that, but um, I'm looking at it now in the documentation. I just, we're not doing that. We're going to change the name. I wonder how important it really is. It probably is more important I, than I would give credit for it. I don't know. It seems silly to me. but We had one client based in Boston who insisted we call it Project Big Apple because he wanted to, uh, in case one of their employees saw the material, they wanted them to think it was about them expanding to New York as opposed to the code name for their company in a process. So... I think it's kind of fun. It's like our one chance to be creative and, you know, clever in some <laughs> cases, sometimes too clever. But yes, I, I would love to know. It'd be a good uh, exercise. And like, does the name really matter at yeah. the end of the day? And how, how do you go about recruiting talent? So we grew, I think, very cautiously and carefully. Um, one of our first hires was one of those encounters in the building. Uh, there was an accounting firm in one of our first office spaces that was on the same floor. Uh, it was a, a German accounting firm that had a U.S. office in Charlotte. And one of their employees, uh, she was a recent UNC Charlotte graduate in accounting. Um, you know, we just got to talking one day in the lobby about what we do. And we knew at that point we needed to add someone with primarily financial analyst skills to help add to that capacity. Uh, and we were looking for someone that was comfortable working across multiple clients, had a really strong international accounting background that, that became important to us. We have a lot of cross-border deals where you have to be comfortable working in different uh, countries and, and across uh, IFRS. That, that's and not GAP. What do they call that? IFRS. IFRS. Yeah. Okay. And um, she's just a, a great hard worker, Christina Sergeva. She was actually born in Russia yeah. and uh, you know, fluent in a couple of different languages, very comfortable with international travel. And so we, we, you know, we look at background We've recruited a couple of people who had a uh, background in our industry and kind of taught them investment banking, just knowing that they had IT services or professional services in their background. Um, we, you know, it's a little cliche maybe, but we look for good team members. Um, I think this is a space that is filled with people with big egos, and we, we try to avoid that where we can. We have a model where you have to be comfortable um, sharing ideas with people, working alongside them. Uh, there's certainly deal teams are very clear what the roles and responsibilities are, but the way our firm is set up, we mentioned those buyers, everyone has a list of buyers that they're responsible for and everyone needs to bring their best buyer ideas to our client engagements and take those clients out to the, the buyers they're responsible for. So there is a lot of dependency on your teammate to be successful in a process. And we're looking for people that are comfortable in that environment. Um, I think in some investment banks, it's very much a silo. The guys on the team are the only ones making the call. There's a rainmaker at the top. You show up to the meeting, you better not talk. You let the rainmaker do all the talking. And as you advance, that rainmaker might let you start saying five words in a meeting. We, we try to get around that uh, completely. Um, so we, we look for people that are comfortable working in a team environment. For sure, there's a, a finance aspect to it. So you have to be comfortable with those kinds of concepts. Um, easy to get along with, fun to hang out with. Uh, those are important qualities. But yeah, look, it's hard. Uh, you know, and, good talent's hard to find. They have to be very entrepreneurial in in some cases. Yes. Just as an example, when we were selling a mentor at a Red Hat, um, we had a, a landlord that we needed. Red Hat required a signature that, hey, when when, when we buy this company, a we release. can extend the uh, oh, yeah. yeah keep the lease going. It wasn't a huge office. It was maybe a forty person office, um, but but it was important to them and probably more than it needed to be, but I don't know why it was such a big deal. But in any event, we couldn't get a hold of the 
the, the, the owner, the, the property manager couldn't get a hold of the owner. Mm. And he said, no, we're not going to have, unless you tell us who it is. And he said, well, I can't tell you who it is because we, you know, and, and just the skill that they used to negotiate and go back and forth. It was a very yeah. entrepreneurial thing that they were, that they were doing. And I, I remember being very impressed that, yeah, these are guys who can spreadsheet out and get on a million phone calls, just delivering a generic pitch but then when they're throwing yeah. a curveball they they step in for you and get I it think done that's right yeah. you know resiliency uh that that's a you know the good think on your feet not wait to be told what to do but mm-hmm. to be proactive and say there's a problem here's how i'm going to fix it uh good communicator too um and then we we also we value people who are comfortable picking up the phone and, and calling people they've never talked to before and introducing themselves and i think to be very good in this space you have to be able to establish credibility very quickly you have to be comfortable kind of stepping out of your comfort zone and talking about things that maybe you don't have perfect knowledge of, but you need to advance the conversation. And that's kind of the only way to do it. Take a risk. And maybe, maybe you look dumb. Maybe you'll say, you know, something that turns out not to be true, but we'd rather you do that than stay quiet or just back away from the conversation and say, well, I don't know enough to weigh in. So I'm just going to sit back here and let's see what happens. That's great advice. What are you hearing about the macros from your clients um, or just people you're talking to yeah. in the industry? Is there, a, I mean, obviously there is a recession coming, but is, well, is, is something imminent? Or? It's a great, great question. Um, so, so far the clients we've dealt with, it it's overall still a very strong level of demand from their clients. Like they see good opportunities. Most of our clients sell into commercial businesses as opposed to government. But, but even for those that do have government clients, that's going great. Um, you know, governments are not having to do budget cuts. They're they're getting that continuing resolution every four weeks yeah, or whatever fe- it is. Federal <laughs> is something special, but you know, even state and local. Um, what seems to be an emerging consensus is Europe might have a little bit of a pullback here. So the European market, if that's your client base or that's your target market, uh, at least buyers perceive it as less attractive than uh, the U.S. right now. Um, it is amazing to me as much IT services that gets done offshore that they're not making more uh, political noise about how hard it is now to deal with offshore entities from a commercial perspective. Uh, one of our best clients right now is headquartered in Mexico, and they're growing like gangbusters. Uh, and it's just mind-blowing to me that somehow we're you know trying to make a problem where there really isn't one uh, around working uh, with companies based there, or even in Canada. So if anything will stop this kind of runaway freight train of growth, it's going to be our own undoing with trade agreements or government interference and things that, uh, in my mind, uh, you know, are totally unnecessary. I don't understand what the outcome is going to be. So if anything, people are a little worried about that, just like this unexpected political risk that might disrupt a relationship or a contract. Um, so I, a recession coming is a great question. I, I personally think it's been such a long run, it has to kind of pull back to the mean. Uh, but um, every time I've said that, I've been wrong so far. And to me, it feels like the stock market in general, it's price very high relative to what I would expect. And every time I think it's going to correct, it finds some new way to go back up. Interesting. Are, are you seeing any shifts in focus for buyers as a result of the threat of trade wars? or So I do think there is for the... Um, Indian outsourcers, especially a renewed interest in establishing domestic delivery centers, alternative delivery. I think people already had that sentiment when um, some of just the market forces in India, the wages are rising, um, you know, faster than I think they can keep up with. 
And um, there's still a pretty amazing pool of talent in Latin America. And to me, that's one of the more exciting things we've seen. Uh, we just had two people go down to Brazil and met with some of the largest, most exciting companies that we've, we've talked to in a long time. Uh, and they're almost these undiscovered gems of companies doing 50, 100, 200 million of revenue. And they haven't come across our radar yet. And I think that's going to become uh, a really a new economic engine. So Brazil, Argentina, Costa Rica, uh, uh, even Chile, um, these are countries that, that frankly couldn't compete with Mexico in terms of like talent and English language skills and technology skills. And their markets have just matured now. The talent is there. The internet and cloud-based software have made it so easy to work with people anywhere in the world at any time. Yeah, and, and the only thing that the internet can't fix is time zones. And those right. those, those folks are all in the yeah, right time zone. Yeah, and zones. there's, there's a, a, an intangible value to being aligned from a time zone and just a, a, just a, a nicer, easier place to get to if you have to do an in-person meeting. Um, Flying north-south is much easier yeah. than east-west. yeah. So I, I would, you know, one of my predictions would be Latin America, especially for IT services, but in, in a lot of ways will we'll surprise people at how large some companies will be that um, they have never heard of and all of a sudden will show up. But much like China was maybe five, 10 years ago, these names that no one had really heard of are all of a sudden, you know, global players and, and top five in their category mm -hmm. and have just kind of grown quietly when no one was paying attention. Has the business of mergers and acquisitions changed since you first got into it? Hmm. With with decision point. Um, that's a great question. I was, you know, I've often wondered if we're going to get exposed to, you know, commoditization or technology replacement. And I've I've watched with interest at some people who've tried to set up exchanges, or matchmaking services, even like AI to try to guess, you know, who would be the right buyer to approach. Um, it is such a relationship driven business at the end of the day that. I still think it's very um, traditional in our approach. Um, you have to understand a business. You have to present it in a way that's compelling to buyers or investors. Or if you're on the buy side, you have to take a holistic view of a company to evaluate an opportunity. Maybe our ability to be, you know, use technology to advance communications faster, to pull down information, analyze it more more quickly. Um, I would tell you one thing that's that's changed for me is LinkedIn. I think when I first got started, LinkedIn was kind of a, you know, Facebook for companies. And that's kind of annoying. Why do I want to get on there? Sales and recruiting. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> for recruiting, for yep. I'll tell you, it, it is the number one, uh, you know, piece of public information about a company uh, in terms of its size. You can learn a lot just by looking at what information is available to you on LinkedIn about a company that previously would take a lot of phone calls, a lot of sleuthing, a lot of just direct knowledge. And now it's out there on LinkedIn for people to see and for you to collect. And that, you know, to me, that might be the, the biggest change. But at the end of the day, CEOs still have to meet. Uh, board members have to like a deal. Uh, people have to perceive value. Negotiations typically play, take place face to face. And you can get away with a lot of things over the phone and video conference calls now. But there's still uh, nothing that replaces a, a face to face meeting. I agree with that, especially, I mean, any, any sales, any complex sale, I think yeah. that, that it's, it's just hard to replace that face to face. Uh, can you give the listeners a feel for what the various funding options are like for different levels of progress um, or, or how they should be thinking, sure. you know, how companies think about funding series A, B, C, D, yeah. S. I, I think an early stage company, so it's somewhat industry dependent. If you're in a high growth sector like software, there are more early stage I think financing options available to you because there's a perception that with a modest amount of capital, 
a huge amount of revenue growth as possible. So if you're if you're turning out widgets, especially if those widgets are pieces of software that don't require a lot of labor to scale. Um, well, you, now they don't require any hardware or even software it, licensing. It's, it's cloud. It's, the it's on demand. Barrier entry it's, is yeah. so low. Exactly. You get an AWS subscription and a really smart idea. It, it's like a virtual drug company. You might just have a compound and you could outsource the entire process of research, approval, distribution, all the way through to getting a major pharma company to buy you. And you might have had 10 full time employees along the way. And you add in additive printing and you add in some of the new injection molding yeah. techniques and it's contract just manufacturing so much, so much cheaper to do things so product you know software especially we, we deal you know with technology companies um, they have i think a wider range of early investment options um, if you're here in charlotte it's still somewhat limited compared to other locations you know your best bet is still to be in silicon valley but i think the secret's out and you know there are funds out there that now look for deals and they don't care where you are they'll get on a plane they'll meet with you virtually they they're open to anything. But yes, it's easier if they can get in a car and drive down and see you if something's going wrong than have to get on a plane uh, to meet. Yeah, a company I invested in recently raised a big, big round of follow-on funding um, and, and Rise of the the Rise of the Rest Fund was, was part of it, which is a fund that Steve Case started under Revolution, I yeah. believe, oh, yeah. for, for investing in cities outside of D.C. or New York or so San like Francisco or Austin. It's a knowledge economy. Um, you'd be foolish to think that only the best CEOs or innovators live in major metros. It's I true. Um, services companies, I think you're more limited uh, in your early investment options. There, I think you're more in the friends and family round for a while. Um, I think most commercial banks and, and lender traditional lenders really don't want to do more than like a line of credit, and that's going to be controlled by your assets. And, and most services companies, their assets are accounts receivable, some laptops, and maybe some office furniture. Standing desks. Yes, Veridesk everywhere. <laughs> Veridesk pros. I think that was that's the right. only thing on our balance in, sheet other than invest, AR and cash. <laughs> invest in chronic back pain uh, treatment centers here in about 10 years. Tattoo removals and back pain <laughs> treatment. It'll be a hot commodity. Yeah, so I, I think for services companies, they, in my mind, sometimes at the early stage, um, they make an assumption that because they work with technology, perhaps they're going to be treated to VC level of interest. Um, that's just not the case. It's harder to grow a services company. You need to hire people almost in lockstep with revenue growth unless you have a product or some way to generate revenue faster than you can generate billable hours, and that's almost never the case. Um, it's also generally true that more investors want a product company than want a services company. Like we've gotten to know the investors that really like services companies. They're out there for sure. Um, but um, that, that is a minority of the universe of, of private equity for sure that's out there. Yeah, it, it's amazing to me how much private equity money is in services. It's still minuscule compared to products, right. but it's you see great names like Columbia Capital and Carlyle Group yep. own own services businesses. Yeah, and I, I think they recognize that once it gets to scale or there is um, you know some unique technology tied to it. So if you're implementing Salesforce, if you're implementing AWS, and you are the biggest in a sector, and especially a highly regulated or a really tough sector like healthcare or financial services. They recognize that. But what they really want are barriers to entry, scalable growth, leverage. So a lot of people overlook that. So if your business can't really support a high amount of debt, you, you've kind of violated almost the fundamental principle of a leverage buyout. So if a private equity group can't get comfortable, there's going to be a lender there to help them lever up their investment. It's very hard for them to get excited about putting in money at a high valuation. It, it's funny because I have this discussion a lot. People talk about 
Well, SaaS businesses have recurring revenue. First of all, no, they have churn. It yeah. is recurring, but it's it's yeah. churn. They it's have to earn it every year. Super high, like, you know, very little tolerance for anything more than a few yeah. percentage points of churn. And, and services businesses, we at Amentra, we started working for Geico in 2001. We got up to about 30 people billing, which is a very large project for a small, yeah. a small company, even for a big company. That's a meaningful project. Did you have all 30 uh, on the payroll when you sold the work? We... Uh, well, that that one built over time. It went from two to four yeah. to six. So we we definitely by the time we were twenty five people, we were carrying a bench. Not a big bench, but it was we, we'd have the, one or two people on the bench. This right? is what I observe is one of the hardest things about growing a services company. It's this chicken or the egg. Yeah. So do I stick people on payroll and then go sell them? Do I sell them and then go find them? Because you know the scramble, yeah. right? If you've sold the dream and now you've got a contract in your lap and the client doesn't want to wait you know, 90 days for you to go find the people yeah. you, you said you could deliver this project. Well, and even if you're not carrying a bench, even if I hire you the day that I get a contract signed and then you start on a client, it's still a hundred days of me paying you before I get paid. Cash flow. Now add in yeah. a bench and trying to time the bench and yeah, I, I hire you. I think I'm going to have work in two months. You might have, we'd have people that were three, four months on the bench. And if you think about that, when you're growing, hundred percent a year. Right. It just chews through cash. It's, it's, it's tough. Um, I've, one of my mentors and investors in level was a guy named Will Loving who ran, uh, Ironworks. Yep. He's successful. He and his partner, Scott, and a couple of investors successfully sold to ICF. Sounds I right. Yep. Um, but, but he talked about how whenever you're growing, you're broke as a consultant. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and then when you feel like talk about the crap, owner getting paid last. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Feel but, it. but, but then he's like, but then all of a sudden when you stop growing, ironically, the cash just, you don't, you, yeah. you, you, you don't have anywhere to put it because it's, it just starts coming in. And that's, that's right. That's the irony of consulting. Uh, you know, services company definitely face this curse of, you know, grow too fast. You're going to burn through all your cash, but grow too slowly. Uh, you know, it's, but you know, operationally it has its own challenges, right? So now you don't have really compelling projects for your people to go work on. They feel like they're kind of stuck where they are. Why am um, I a consultant if I'm on the same project yeah. for a year? I find it interesting, but most, I think founders, um, who are, who are the number one salesperson tend to top out somewhere around five to 10 million of revenue. It's where most people can sell themselves reliably and especially if they're doing any kind of delivery and by, by that point most of them pull themselves out of actual billable work but they're they're out there selling they're mining all their relationships they're closing as many deals as they can we, we were at about a four million dollar a year run rate when i stopped delivering yeah and then i stopped selling when we hit probably a 12 to 14 million dollar run rate I, I find at that point where people have to make a decision of do i because they enjoy the money they can make when they're the best salesperson, right? Because you, you don't just pay yourself a commission, you pay yourselves the, the net profit of the business. They have to decide at that point, do I now invest in hiring salespeople and a real back office? And do I become more of a, a practice leader administrator? And if so, um, this, this dynamic has to change. I can't continuously be the best salesperson. I can't be the chief cook and bottle washer and it just won't scale with that kind of, you know, limited bandwidth. So to us, that's, you know, we talked to a lot of companies before they're ready to do anything and they're at that size. And that's probably the thing we most watch for is, are, are you investing in scale and growth? And, and ultimately that's what matters to buyers. So profitability is great, but profitability without growth tends to let people, tends to cool people's interest in buying a company. What, what advantage does a smaller bank like yours have over, 
some of the bigger, more established yeah. globally recognized uh, names. Maybe the top one is that you're looking at the deal committee, right? Like, yes, I have partners and we have to agree <laughs> a client makes sense, but I can't tell you how many people got so frustrated and left a big firm because a great client relationship, they invested five years in building up, finally got ready to do a deal. And some mysterious deal committee came along and just killed it. Said, no, we're not I'm, doing I'm it. I'm laughing because at Amentra and at Level, we used to always joke, a client would say, we we want to get this MSA done. It's going to take a long time. Well, we'll push, we'll give it to our favorite lawyer, which was us. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so your, your deal committee is, yeah, is you, it, and that makes it a lot we're easier. We're nimble. Yeah. We're responsive. Look, we're, we're still, um, we, might, we might be over 20 people, but every client really matters. Um, there is no... Uh, I don't have enough reputation that I can just burn someone because it's convenient. And I, I think you get, in, in many respects, uh, a better client service. Um, I don't have a brokerage arm. I don't have a captive private equity group. I don't have these things that other firms do that I might argue are conflicts of interest. Some folks like it because it's one-stop shopping, you know, if you want all those things in your financial services relationship. But we're, we're very dedicated. Um, when we take on a client, we're committed to getting that deal done for them. Uh, and I think it comes through uh, when you have a personal commitment like that versus maybe a bigger firm where it's a little bit more of a bureaucratic decision. What uh, disadvantages do you have against the the, the bigger the bigger? Place? I can't give work away for free. I can't take a loss on the first deal to win the larger engagement. I can't cover as much ground as I'd love to. I think big firms have um, pretty amazing relationship networks that they can go out and mine pretty reliably. Do they maybe have deeper research capabilities too? Do yeah, you think, I think that matters to some people. And then, yeah, look, if you're looking to do an M&A deal because eventually you want to go public and you want to keep the relationship with the same firm to do both, I can't do that. I don't have a trading desk. I can't float shares on, a, on an exchange. Um, if you believe you're going to get staple financing, that your investment bank's going to give you the debt um, that an investor will use to buy your company, I don't have that balance sheet to do it for you. So yeah, there what, what size firm does, is this a Goldman or a Morgan? Or? For sure. The money center bank guys. Yeah. Um, I don't think I haven't heard of the middle market banks doing that. Some of them have set up their own, uh, asset management arm and then they'll raise a fund and they may be able to provide investment from an affiliated fund, but you're generally looking that at like, that seems like a channel conflict. I mean, if you're building is it relationships, John or is, it, <laughs> is it a relationship? I don't, you know, yeah. Interesting. Uh, we've seen some funds actually break off from investment banks for that exact reason, but uh, yes, you're, you're talking about like Wall Street firms at this point who are attached to a bank that can you know do that. And sometimes the bank relationship honestly is like, hey, uh, I was a business banker. This client was doing great. I was writing all their treasury services, line of credit. We were doing all their financing, but now they're ready to sell. I'm a business banker. I don't do that, but I'm going to go call the investment banking arm to walk in and tell them their options to go raise equity or sell the business. Well, I assume the minimum fund of a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley or a JPMC is a little more than $250,000. Yes. Also. So they tend to have higher fee minimums. It's very true. It's very true. <laughs> but but I assume, I, I think you mentioned that you've partnered with bigger banks on deals. Is this yeah. correct? So uh, sometimes it is uh, a joint advisory arrangement. Um, we had one client here in town um, that we worked with uh, McCall Partners uh, on that uh, is now Deloitte Corporate Finance, and, and that worked out great. Uh, we had a UK advisory firm that was relatively boutique in, in size, but they were very focused on Europe. They really didn't have a presence in the US. Um, we did a couple of deals together with them. And then I mentioned uh, Credit Suisse. So we have a banker there who's you know, told us, and we've tried to 
essentially say, look, we'd love to split the fees on this with you because of your, you know, relationship and we think you can be helpful. He's always refused it. He said, look, um, that would just make things too complicated. Um, it's better for me if you provide great service to this client, make me look good. And when they're ready to go do a half million, half billion dollar shelf registration or go buy a company for, you know, uh, three quarters of a billion dollars, I'll go work on that deal. And they're going to call me first because I helped them, you know, with you guys go buy a company for 50 or a hundred million dollars. And that's what they needed to get to that point. I, I asked a JP Morgan tech banker, very impressive guy. He'd done a lot of really big deals. And I asked him like, why do you even talk to companies at the size and scope that we are? These can't matter to you. And he goes, yeah, I don't give a shit about your fee. <laughs> like, I really <laughs> he, don't. Yeah. So <laughs> he's well, like, but, but, but I care about is he said, I sold a $15 million a year machine learning company to Cisco I need to keep Cisco happy with good ideas. It's ideas. <laughs> yeah. No, that's we we countlessly get calls from that uh, Credit Suisse banker and, and others who's like, look, in an hour I'm meeting with the CEO of global company XYZ, give me ten ideas to pitch to them. What are ten good companies in this sector? That's really smart of them, by the way. Yeah, but, yeah. and we love it. And we try to drop everything and make them look good. And then, you know, that is where you get the referral. Like, hey, they like three of these ideas. If those are actionable, here's the guy's cell phone number, he's waiting for your call that you can't, you know, we couldn't pay enough money for that kind of warm intro to mm -hmm. what is a very, you know, uh, exciting, lucrative, you know, hard to get relationship in this space. And, the, and those kind of calls are what we live for. So yeah, it's to them, it's worth dealing with us and getting good ideas to make them look good so that when a bigger opportunity comes, they're poised to get the engagement. So I'm, I'm guessing you've sold businesses that, that were the result of a family break up whether a death, a divorce, or just the family just doesn't get along, or they disagree on where they want it to go, or the maybe the founder gave it to three sons and, and or daughters, and they, they just don't agree anymore. Is, is that something that you have run into frequently? or Once or twice. So I will say for whatever reason, a lot of tech services companies, maybe they're just so specialized that they don't tend to fall in this family uh, tradition kind of mentality that maybe a, a general industry company does. But we, we definitely have a few uh, mandates that were the result of um, uh, children stepping in. And probably more common would be a founder uh, brings in, either promotes up an employee to become the CEO or, or brings in a CEO. Uh, they run it for a while. Things are going great. And now there's a difference of opinion, right? There, there's some equity split there. And the CEO wants to go one direction. The founder wants to go another. Or co-founders who say, look, maybe the best thing to do here is to buy one or the other out. And so that that's probably more common. Like the, the true family business, you know, um, kids running it, the dad started or grandfather started it. We, we've had one or two of those. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in consulting especially, that's just much rarer uh, than it is perhaps in other industries. Do you have any advice for founders? And this isn't even just with family, with, with partners for yeah. things they should be thinking about at the time that they start the company that could prevent those outcomes from being harsh or yeah. one-sided or? Um, that's a great question. So equity is forever. I'd think about that. I think a lot of people make decisions at the outset um, around ownership splits that they regret down the road, thinking there'll be a chance to correct it or change it. Um, that's often very hard to do. Uh, you know, signing up an, an equity ownership agreement, um, barring some major event, um, that's going to be in place permanently. Um, you might be able to dilute people down with 
additional equity or outside investors or things like that. How, how do you get around that? Do you put in a buy sell agreement where there's a Yeah. Well, one I think it's thoughtfulness about, you know, ownership split at the outset. Um, are you going to tie it to invested capital or is it going to be sweat equity? If it is sweat equity, be very clear on the terms that are necessary to get that. Um, I think beginning with the mindset that um, the people that are most important to an investor or a buyer need to have some ownership stake in the business. Um, I think a lot of times we get involved in a company, it's owned by one person, typically the CEO. And as it becomes clear that there's a really strong team underneath them, we know what's going to happen. A buyer is going to show up, meet the company, get to know them and say, look, um, I noticed in the cap table, there's only one entry and it's you. Um, however, we're very impressed with these people and we're pretty sure this company wouldn't be here without them. And most importantly, were you to leave, we were totally dependent on this team. If we go through a transaction and they get nothing, they're going to be extremely upset and very inclined to leave and not, not want to stick around. So either you cut them in now and decide how to allocate that ownership stake, or we're going to do it for you. And we're just going to take some deal value away from you and distribute it out to the team that we think is important to the deal being successful. So I would get in front of that. A lot of people do. Some people wait to the last second, I feel like, and then they're, you know, scrambling. Um, and there are, there are ways to do that that are, you know, with some planning are a lot more effective, tax efficient, you know, work the way you want them to work versus waiting till 90 days before you're going to close a transaction. And now you're kind of boxed in and you've got to get something done quickly. Um, or, or I've seen that a couple of times where the tax consequences were mind-blowingly awful. Yeah. And if just a little thought had been put in a year or two earlier. <laughs> Long-term capital gains is an amazing thing. And if you don't qualify for it, um, it is it is almost punitive to see what people have to pay between uh, federal and state uh, ordinary income taxes. So it's a boring and dry subject. I get it. But when it becomes real, and I, I think to some extent, two people after like you know the dot-com blow up and the 08 meltdown, they looked at things like equity and, and phantom stock and people were like, oh, like that, that'll never, like who cares? Like we'll do whatever. That'll never, what are the chances this really becomes liquid or has value? And now this chicken's come home to roost and you're like, oh gosh, I can't believe I gave, you know, this admin. When you write a 60% check. <laughs> yeah. Because in some cases you're dealing with double taxation, oh, right? Yeah. Because it's a yeah. C corp and it's an asset sale as opposed to exactly. a stock sale. Exactly. So tax planning, estate planning, do it at least a year before you think there's going to be a transaction. Um, it might feel painful to write the check to a lawyer now or an estate planner now to put the plan in place. But when you're saving six, seven figures worth of taxes at closing, um, you'll you'll thank us that you did it. So it sounds like you get it. The the, the best is our, our mutual friend, Austin Rosenfeld, who was on the podcast, who literally moved to Texas. Yeah. There's no state in A Redskins tax. fan moved to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> So, so obviously you've talked a lot about deals in the tech services space. What are the trends here that you're paying attention to now? The cloud. The cloud yeah. dominates everything. Um, and by cloud, you mean public cloud? You mean hybrid cloud? You mean... I, yeah, so, so the big three right now right, are, are AWS, Amazon, uh, Microsoft Azure, and Google's uh, cloud infrastructure. Um, Oracle and a couple others have some interesting also-rans, but... Um, I think right now that's those are the three cloud public clouds that people pay most attention to. Um, I think SaaS software um, mm -hmm. is still high on people's list. I think we're really we're trying to still figure out who are the up and coming SaaS players that are going to knock off incumbents like Oracle or SAP. Um, 
that that's interesting to us. I, I actually think I just visited Map Anything today, who was recently acquired that? by Salesforce. How about uh, not, that? Not that that's right? a services company, but it's, I, uh, yeah. I don't know why that doesn't get more press. Yeah. That to me, that's an amazing success story here for Charlotte, especially with just you know it. it we're so desperate, I think, for a great software success story that that should be shouted from the rooftops yeah they raised 80 million dollars through the years and now the great thing is you're going to be driving down 77 and when you used to see the map anything sign that is now going to be the salesforce are they Charlotte that's great office. yeah that's they're, great they're starting a rebuild of it in, in a little bit and um yeah and and uh yeah that that that's really exciting and and i think uh, they're an example of a, a dis, just a disruptive SaaS company that's going in there and kicking oracle and sap and yeah. the teeth and siebel and some of the, i mean there's so many other CRM companies that used to be around, and it's just not even a, a thing anymore. At, at one point in my life, I was a certified Siebel technical architect back in the day. <laughs> and yeah, I know. I mean, it's that, you know, more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, I, I remember it was a big deal to move off client server, right? And mm-hmm. go to, uh, remember Oracle tried to roll out those virtual machines or virtual uh, desktops, and network computing was going to be a thing. Um, so I, I think the cloud and SaaS now are, are you know, a permanent what, what about fixture. In the, what about in the machine learning and artificial intelligence yeah. space? Because there's a lot of money going after. And I, I advise uh, Stratified, which is a local machine learning startup that, that Taylor works for and that Derek Wang, who was on the show, uh, was, was the founder of. Clearly, and he's raised a lot of money from Georgian Partners and some other big name investors. Yeah. But I don't think there's any services company in that space that you can point to and say, yeah, this is a great machine learning. And I may just be wrong, but there's not. No, I think think that's probably what's missing, though. I think so. Machine learning and AI, in my experience, there's a real enterprise adoption barrier. And I think some consulting partners need to come through to Mm -hmm. make that work. I think it's like data warehouses and analytics were 20 years ago. Those are great on paper. You look at some awesome case studies. The sales rep comes in and sells you the most expensive hardware you've ever bought because you need it. And then, you know, six months and millions of dollars later, you look at what you got and it's it's not running. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting the insight I was told I would get. This thing is crashing every night. It can't refresh. We're not getting reports running the way we thought they would. I think AI and machine learning is the same way. You need experts beyond just the engineers who can build the the layer of processing to get the, the engine running, someone's got to get in there and show them how to actually use it. Well, one of the things that I've learned from working with Derek and, and, and Brad and Kevin over at Stratified is that machine learning is just, it's different from application development. Right. It's, an application, it's almost like philosophical. Yeah, right? it is. And, and, and the thing that I, I still haven't fully wrapped my head around is in application development, the algorithm is king or the implementation is king. Good machine learning applications, the algorithm is almost, I won't, I won't say irrelevant, but the training and training the model correctly with enough data and getting the right data yeah. and rejecting the data, it's, it's just a very different skill set. And so we've at, at Stratified, I've worked with their head of partnerships, Chris Barr, and, you know, he's working with some very great firms. I'm not going to say names, not that I'm saying anything bad about these folks, but they're, they still don't really understand machine learning and they still don't really understand AI because... I think an, a traditional application development mindset is yeah. just so fundamentally fundamentally different. So I think there's always been this um, brand of consulting called innovation consulting, and I've um, many times lost my faith in humanity and become you know quite uh, dismissive of terms like that as just marketing spin and whatever. Uh, but we we have a client that does that, and and it it really opened my eyes to what is possible in that world. And 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 part of their model is they they own 
a uh, an incubator, and they'll take large corporate uh, company teams, uh, well, teams from large companies, and say, look, you need to reimagine the way you do business. Like, if you look around, you're getting gobbled up by these technology-driven competitors, and you're going to be, uh, you're, you're, this line of business will be, if you're lucky, in 50th out of 50. So let's go reimagine the way your business could work, and let's take a small group of you and go through an incubation session. And that's mm-hmm. where I think, that's like what machine learning is to these guys. It, it's going to be a, such a new way to run the business. And, and if machine learning is done right, I think it presents insights and uh, discoveries that no one expected, right? And you have to have a little bit of like philosophical faith that the machine's going to uncover things that you would just never figure out. They run counter to your intuition. Well, Strat- Derek has been pretty adamant that in, in there. So first of all, he's trying to build augmented intelligence. He isn't trying to replace the humans. He's trying to right. make the humans smarter and work on the things that, frankly, they want to work on. One of the problems that humans have is bias. And if you work with yep. a if you work with supervised learning, then the human trains the robot, and unfortunately, you introduce biases. And so he's pretty adamant about we're going to start with unsupervised and get the human pointed in the right direction. Right. Because there's just there's things that they've uncovered. They uncovered for one bank that you, you've got people complaining about your mobile app about second amendment rights violations and it turned out it was because people were trying to swipe their cards that were issued by this bank at walmart and they were rejecting to buy firearms and so people were complaining about second right well if you if a human looks at it they're not they don't necessarily they're not necessarily looking for that and saying this is an anomaly why is anybody talking about second amendment rights on an app for a bank and but but if you start with the robot and and it goes and it learns then I think that you you, you, you remove some of those human biases. Uh, I, I also think, you know, we now live in a world where there's so much data. Um, it is so cheap to store. It's so easy to produce. There, there literally is not a human or a team of humans who could consume all the data that's at their disposal effectively. It's just, it's not going to exist. So if you don't know how to work with some type of analytics, AI, machine learning, and let the software do what it's meant to do, which is digest all this data and bring you back conclusions that, would never make sense to you. you. You might think, I run a store and all I care about is what time of day do I put the highest prices up because there's the biggest demand so I can make the most money. Mm-hmm. And it might produce this insight that actually your best shoppers come in uh, from Starbucks around the corner. Like that is 100%. That's the best shopper you'll ever have. So your, be- your better move is to go run a promotion of that Starbucks and ignore your <laughs> variable pricing. Be like, no, that's not the way. I've, I've done this for 10 years. I'm supposed to change pricing at peak surge demands. D- data don't lie, even, yeah. even without artificial intelligence. And <laughs> I think people, you know, articles are going to start to come out now about how much data technology companies know this and how much alarming amount of data and insights they really have on you to mm-hmm. push at this point advertising. But like we know that's just the tip of the iceberg. So to me, that, that is machine learning AI. Uh, oh, my goodness. The buzzwords are just being applied left and right. Um, it's hard to cut through the noise. But yes, it's it's changing the way people do business for sure. A- absolutely. Uh, so what kind of multiples are you seeing for financial and for strategic buyers? Um, and obviously, it's going to be industry. Let's even just focus on tech services because yeah, that's where you do services. a lot of your deals. So it's heavily still dependent on growth and, and sector. You know, if you're scaled up over 20 million of revenues, um, most 
tech services companies need to do at least 30% gross margin, 40% is better. So gross margin more important than EBITDA in your mind if you're growing uh, that fast? A little bit. Yeah. And, you know, healthy growth rate. So at least 15, 20% year over year growth. And almost as important is a good track record of growth. So two to three years of consistent growth. Um, people get very nervous about the one bad year uh, in three being a sign that uh, there, there's something to this business that makes it hard to predict going forward. You know, that tends to be, in this market, maybe a, a 7 to 10 times EBITDA uh, type of multiple. I still think valuations are tied back to EBITDA at the end of the day. If you have 15% EBITDA, you're doing a, a pretty good job. If you can couple that with 20-plus percent growth, I think you're in good shape. I think financial sponsors have gotten very aggressive. I, I think maybe five years ago, um, they were conservative. Um, I think it helps now that debt is very cheap and widely available, so they can get aggressive and, and rely on a debt partner to help them get their own evaluation. Um, I think they've also raised just amazing amounts of money. I think there's tons of articles written about how much capital has been raised. Apollo, now. $23 billion, Carlisle, $18 billion. You, you, you literally can't wrap your head around how much money. And that, that is, you know, trickle down to midsize funds and, and the guys who look for middle market deals. Well, And, and to your point on the buy, we talked earlier about buy side work and yeah. they're they're not allowed to put the money on the sideline and wait for a recession the, their, their the investors worst, want them to put it to work the worst thing they can do is say i couldn't find a deal and give it back that's yeah. not why these you know general partners raise the money they want to deploy the capital yep. uh so money wants to find a home you have lots of people showing up competing for good deals and it also I, i've learned over time too the stock market absolutely drives expectations if there's an expectation that the market will keep trading in general, at this earnings multiple uh, of publicly traded companies, people will buy underneath that expectation, thinking that is a very likely exit. Either I'll take this public or I'll sell to a public company, and knowing that they're going to look at where their stock trades, and that's going to translate into a view on where they can buy a company and still be accretive or have some upside for them as a buyer. But yeah, right now we're in this you know pretty amazing bull run of capital being available there's a lot of capital chasing, you know, not that many deals relative to the amount of money they've raised. And there's a stock market, uh, you know, that's been very elevated from a valuation standpoint. And it, it is a seller's market right now. It is a great time to be a seller. I can tell you that right now. It is a lot of people showing up on deals, a lot of people looking past issues that would keep other people out in normal times. And uh, I think the underlying economy is still very strong. If you're selling into corporations, they have a lot of budget. If you're in tech services, the IT budgets are flush. Um, another trend we've seen is that the marketing people, they got the budget used to belong to the CTO now, right? Digital advertising, digital media, it is running the show. And a lot of technology companies have morphed into this kind of hybrid digital agency model where they're putting a marketing campaign together with branding and uh, customer demographics and speaking the marketing language. But underneath, they have a lot of engineers and developers and consultants. Um, and that, again, it, it's it's pulling a lot of people into investing in marketing services and digital agencies at valuations that weren't, weren't think of, thought of in the past. But the expectation is there's just going to be a lot of demand and growth in that sector. Yeah, I can see that. What a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you speak a little bit about the concept of a carve-out? I think you talked about you doing a carve-out where... Yeah. You say, hey, these these 17 firms are the ones that I'm putting a tail on, and if you sell to them, then I, I'm going to get paid. But I believe there's a carve-out up front, which is 
I'm I'm already talking to these companies. You're going to get less of a fee if I sell. Yeah, one we of these. we might have a concession or. Um, uh, yeah, like a, an, you know, a, a list of companies that we would give a different treatment to, um, where we would say, Hey, if you're already at this point and a deal closes with them in this time frame, we, that's a different fee outcome, right? Mm-hmm. So if we, you really did have a term sheet already in place. Uh, and we, we had a deal like this actually, um, that, that closed recently, uh, where there was a great buyer. We'd put lots of deals in front of them, really like them. Um, we invited, uh, a company to attend our conference. We have an annual conference about two, 300 companies show up. It's a mixture of buyers and sellers. They hit it off at the conference. They kept talking. Um, they got to the point where they're ready to do a deal. The, the seller hired us to say, look, get these guys across the goal line. Um, that's one fee outcome. Or if it doesn't work out, um, we're willing to pay you a different fee outcome for bringing in a new buyer that wasn't part of this discussion. Um, the one we had lined up, it didn't work out. They, they ultimately decided they didn't like the way this consulting firm had a, a delivery model that they just decided didn't work for their uh, pretty traditional kind of big four type of delivery. They wanted something different. So we, we did what they asked, and it was, a, it was a different outcome. And that was a carve-out. So the initial buyer at the table was had one treatment. Other buyers that we brought in uh, really from scratch and educating mm-hmm. uh, about the business from uh, step zero all the way through to closing was a different outcome. One of my problems with this notion of a carve out is then I, I think you and your banker, you being the role yeah. that I typically play, but myself and my banker should be aligned in our interests. And I'm always worried that if they're getting paid different fees for one buyer versus another, it shouldn't matter who the buyer is. It should just matter what is the outcome. That's a good, that's a good theory. We typically put some kind of, I'd say, a time limit on that because our theory is, look, if they really were close to a deal and us showing up and waving our wand and saying there's a process now, um, got them to a different price point. Great. But if they haven't closed a deal by this time, they're in the process just like everyone else. So that, that tends to be our way around that. Right. Uh, So it it just, we're starting up, you know, we're going to build the materials. We're about to run a process. We need usually, but even then you're misaligned because in in theory you're better off if it takes longer. Yeah. yeah, But I think you're also missing the fact that I would love nothing more than to show up and get a closing done in 90 days versus run a six month process. And so you would, you would take the reduced fee because there's less. I mean, look, there's some math on our side about the effort and you know, the assurance of closing just, just like you. And Mm -hmm. uh, look at the end of the day, uh, the seller always has the option to say no. If, if we show them the rest of the world and they say, gosh, there were so much better things out there. Why would I ever take this offer? Great. Let's go do it. If we show them the rest of the world, like, you know what? I'm pretty happy with this. I, some people just want the comfort to know that they didn't just take the first offer that showed up. They looked around, they had a view. There's so, a lot to that psychology, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, I think that is one problem we have with the buy side. We could show them the best deal perfectly aligned. And if it is the first deal we show them, they inevitably say no. They're like, well, let's see what's around the corner. That's good. But what else you got? And when it's the fifth deal, they're like, ah, I've seen four that looked So in that not scenario, let's talk about that for a second. Um, and, and we've been going for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. So I'm cognizant of, of, of your time here. But let's talk about that for a little bit. If, if you have a deal that you think is the right deal, but it's the first one you've shown, will you wait a while then to show it to them? John, I'm not going to comment other than <laughs> to say that I'm aware of the psychological impact of the first thing I show you being not necessarily the one you're most likely to move forward. But, but I think that's a great example of the kind of thing that only a banker would be savvy enough to understand. Wow. I, as an entrepreneur, would have never thought of that and yeah. said, you know, it's... 
I, you know, look, it's, it's human psychology. Um, at the end of the day, we're, we're running a relationship based business. I have to keep people happy. And yes, I can look, I can say, look, there's a batch of targets I want you to look at first and let's compare them. Let's get to know them. There's also a little bit of a, we get to know our client through that. You can talk about what you want all day long until you actually get into the mix with a real company and have to come to terms with whether or not you want to bid on them. And if so, at what value that's when we really learn what your true interests are. There's also, especially for a first time buyer, there's just a lack of knowledge. You, you can say in my head, I've always thought I'd wanted to buy this and you meet three companies in that space. You're like, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that's how they get business. Oh, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. I've seen that where it, well, and especially cause a lot of times the buyer is a bigger company and it's being run by somebody who doesn't really care about the company. Yeah. <laughs> not the way the founder does. The founder right. cares. And the first 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 employees really are bought in. But when you're right. talking about a 200,000 person multinational firm, they're, they're, you know, the person making the buying decision might have a quarterly focus and yeah. they really don't care. Uh, I, I have to say that um, the best buy side clients are the ones that have a real vested interest in the acquisition, increasing the value of the company. Many times that ends up being the private equity group that owns it. And they come in with the mentality of the reason we hired you is to do a smart deal that will build my equity value in this business. So that's the kind of incentive you usually need to get over all the pain and heartache of doing a transaction. That's why they want to look at a lot of options. But in the back of their mind, they're going to take the best deal that's available to them in the market. And we've watched a few funds push their CEO to go do a deal and say, look, I understand it's not perfect. I understand it's not, you know, in an ideal world what you want, but we are doing a deal and you're going to pick from these three that we've winnowed it down to. And then we, the fund, will step in and we'll negotiate and close the transaction. And your job as our CEO is to make the best of that deal. Um, which is very different than a management company who has, you know, a lot more reputation at stake, maybe cultural fit. And to them, they may not have a vision for selling for years to come, or uh, maybe they just don't own enough or any one person to have uh, that big of an outcome difference to their personal net worth to where to them, there's not much downside to saying, no, I don't think we're going to do that and be fine. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, th these are the kind of things you don't really think about that often, but the, 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 drive things in a major way. So, uh, before, before we, we finish up here, do you have any thoughts about the pending BB and T and SunTrust merger and kind of what that might mean for Charlotte? I, uh, not that that's your style of banking. I'm but trying to find out more. I'm, uh, would love more talent to come to Charlotte just selfishly. I hope some of those become future employees of ours. So that would be great. <laughs> um, I think it's a net good thing for Charlotte. Um, I believe for, for those who aren't from Charlotte, if you're from Charlotte, you know what this means. Yeah. But if you're not from Charlotte, BB&T is a probably the premier super regional in the Southeast. I think might be the biggest good. bank that did not take a bailout. Yeah. Uh, when Very well run south. bank uh, yep. out of out of Raleigh and the Triangle and, and Wilson, I believe. Um, so so one of the few non-Charlotte-based North Carolina banks, but based, again, Raleigh or Winston-Salem uh, are Winston. two very big employment centers. Yeah. Uh, SunTrust, a great bank. I think they were bankers to Coca-Cola, which is what helped them grow the way that they did. Probably this... If, if, but a very if, big bank. If BB&T isn't the number one super regional yeah. in the Southeast, SunTrust is for sure. Yeah. Uh, and they're based in Atlanta. And they're they they've merged the two banks. I think it's going to be the sixth biggest bank, which is mind blowing to think that there's going to be three of the top six banks in Charlotte. Right. Um, still pales in comparison to to 
to, to, to New York as a banking hub or, or London, but but a big deal. Um, right. And but they're moving the headquarters to Charlotte. It's kind of splitting the middle down 85 um, and they're going to rename it to something new. So this this is a big deal to the to the local. Or at least it's being talked about a lot yeah. in the local Charlotte press. I'm I'm amazed if they actually pull leadership out of both of those cities and and relocate them to Charlotte, it would blow my mind because that's well, I, not I, the bank merger history I'm aware of. But I feel like moving from Atlanta to Charlotte's an easier sell than Raleigh. I yeah. mean, I, I like Charlotte better than Raleigh personally, but not enough uh, better to where I would move. <laughs> I just think SunTrust is so woven into the fabric of Atlanta. That's true. And, and the Georgia Tech relationship. Oh, my so, gosh. Yeah. I mean, their, their name is everywhere. Um, yeah, so I, I'd be amazed if that's what happens. I would, I would love there to be more talent here in Charlotte. I'd kind of like to see a diversity of industries though. Like I, I'd, I'd put it back to you. Like I would much rather there be some software merger that came together and a bunch of software engineers and software talent came to Charlotte. That would be a great outcome. And in my mind, I'm, I'm very happy that they would move all that leadership and, and all that earning power to Charlotte of, but it's another bank and yeah. we have a lot of that already. And I remember in 08 and 09, there were a lot of for sale signs on big homes around here because there were a lot of bankers who were like, I'm, I'm done. Banks are professionals at laying off. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the ripple effect around here, I don't know if it's great to be tying our, you know, horse to this one wagon. Sure. That, that's an interesting perspective from, from a banker, but, but part of the way that you attract companies is through, through acquisitions. I mean, the the reason Red Hat is here is because of a mentor. We're very proud of that fact that that Red Hat's Red Hat now has non-services employees in Charlotte. Uh, be, because of because of acquiring a mentor and the Salesforce example, because of the acquisition of Map Anything, Salesforce had zero had no office presence here in Charlotte, and now they do because of the Map because of that acquisition. acquisition. That's so, a great point. Yeah, um, I would love to see more. I, I personally enjoy meeting tech companies. I think they're great. I think they require this whole ecosystem though of like risk taking capital. You need kind of a a revolving door of, of uh, executives who have run software businesses. And the, the thing you hate to see is one takes off here, they get capital, and the first thing they get told is you got to move. Like, you, we got to relocate this thing to New York or California. The only way you're going to scale is if you relocate this operation. So I'd love to see it. I love I love the map anything story. It's great they were able to well, do this. Well, I love the Charlotte. deal cloud story as well. Ben Harrison was yeah. on the podcast recently, and I know you and Ben are, are friends as well, are friendly as there well. There you go. Um, and that's a great example where he did himself. He talked about this on the podcast. He had to move to New York, but they remained committed to right to, to Charlotte. And now they're opening, I think, a twenty thousand square foot office uh, as part of Intel. Is that right? Yes. Nice. Uh, yeah. So that 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 business has continued to grow. So I, I do think that tech businesses are a little different because when you see an acquisition, it's not like a Chiquita where <laughs> they get acquired and they move <laughs> right <laughs> before they can unpack their bags. Yeah, I mean, if, if, when you, when you buy a tech services company, part of what you want is geographic coverage because yeah. there's even even if you do the work remotely, they're just the fact remains that big tech services capabilities typically have offices. They're not remote and they're servicing customers in a local market or a right. local time zone. So. I don't know if it was you or Ben who made the point, but like, you know these banks are giant technology companies with a financial services. Ben made layer the point very well. Them. Yep, yep. And that's here in Charlotte, and I'm. It still amazes me to this day that with all this talent milling around, who have pretty cutting edge. I mean, that's another thing you guys talked about. Bank of America doesn't just wait 
uh, for you know to be a late Zelle, Zelle processes four times as much money right? as Venmo. I I personally prefer using Venmo, but you 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 can't argue. And and Zelle was invented at Bank of America to move money to Wachovia at the time. Oh, is that where it came <laughs> yeah, from? I yeah. did not know that. It was called Clear Exchange. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I'd okay. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? Look, I, I think there are, I think there's a lot of talent um, that I, I think in some sense gets very comfortable. Look, those are good paying jobs. I get it. The benefits are still extraordinary at these employers. And I think it's it's hard sometimes for people to imagine life could somehow be better or worth the risk to go jump out and start a software business or go do an early stage venture backed, you know, software company. I, I know we now have some, I hope we get a lot more. I, I think that that type of growth uh, of an industry would do Charlotte a lot better in terms of just a more vibrant, you know, balanced economy. And it'd be a lot more fun. There'd be a lot more interesting companies, options that would keep people coming here. We're already yeah. getting a huge influx of young people, well-educated. So I think the workforce is there. I just think a few more people just need to be comfortable taking the leap and starting one up. I agree. And that, that's part of the reason I started this podcast is I think that there are a lot of people sitting in the towers at Duke Energy, which we haven't even talked about that, yeah. but the, you know, the biggest power company in the world is, is here in right. Charlotte, right. um, or, or sitting in Bank of America, or sitting in Wells Fargo, and they need to hear the stories of, of you. They need to hear Derek's story of he went out and created a, a world-beating machine learning company right here in Charlotte. They need to hear Ben's yeah. story. Um, I think that it is good to have big companies, but I think the real value of having the big companies here is that startups want to have those companies as their clients. And yep. I think there's a lot of value. And Ben talked a lot about this. Just buy our products. Just buy the startups products. That's a game changer for us. It will help you right. drive innovation. It will it will help diversify our economy. And in fact, in uh, Atlanta, um, I think this is, a, to, to your point, our economy is so one-sided that we couldn't pull off a feat that that they've pulled off in Atlanta that I think is great. Have you heard of Engage Venture Capital? Yeah. Yeah. So so what they've done is they've raised money from 11 or 12 of the top um, indus- industrials in in uh, it's like in a, a strategic venture capital. Yeah, and and there was a group trying to do this in Charlotte, yeah. and it was just a real struggle. And I asked Chris Hart, my co-founder at Level, why why do you think that is? And he's like, oh, it's simple. Home Depot and Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola and SunTrust and Warner Media, they don't compete with each other. Exactly. <laughs> so they can invest in a fund together. Yeah. Try convincing Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and BB&T Trust or whatever it becomes to, to, to do that. It's, it's, it's a much harder proposition, yeah. I think. So. I think you're right. I think... Um, but, but again, it, it, but it points out the fact that Atlanta could do this points out that Big companies can be a big part of the benefit, and I've been involved. Um, Stratified took some money from Engage. Another company I've invested in has taken money from Engage, and both of no them good. are seeing the portfolio companies didn't just give them money. They're their customers now. I was going to ask, <laughs> so do they actually pull through the investors from the fund? It's, show it's up amazing for a, what, what Tiago, yeah, it's amazing what Tiago and his partner have done at Engage. Both of these companies are having the experience that they're they're getting pulled into meetings, they're getting exposure to executives, and most importantly, they're getting contracts yeah. out of these. I think there are. I think the best incubator um, probably is a corporate department where you are working to build some technology solution. 
you probably end up with a product idea in the back of your mind. You look around at how your company does things now. You're like, I can't imagine this is the no best way. No way are we going to build this. Right. <laughs> and and I think that, like you said, uh, one, it's never been easier to start a software company. It's a, The price now is so low to get um, access to you know, servers, databases, even talent. My goodness, you can go get, you know, coders and mm -hmm. testers now uh, offshore and, and anywhere in the world, even rural stores. You don't have to go outside the U.S. You have access to talent like never before. And the tools are there that allow them to collaborate remotely so right. they don't have to be sitting in your office. You, you, they don't need to be in Charlotte. They don't need to be down the street. They could be across the country uh, or in another country. And to, to take the leap of faith and you know, more than likely secure a contract from your old employer on the way out the door to be like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I built this, you know, in my spare time, it's solving this problem. I know we have it. You know, we have it. You guys just spent all this money. We're no, we're no better off with whatever solution we just rolled out. So why don't you become my pilot customer? I'll have your logo as my first paying customer and nothing teaches you more than having that first customer and then go build a company around that. Um, I wish more people would do it. I, I obviously I'm cheering here from the sidelines, but I've we've worked at a lot of great companies where that was their origin story. Was you know either doing that or I was at a big consulting firm. I, I took you know this team of people with me. We went and started something after we it became clear our old employer wasn't good at it or didn't value it. And now here we are, you know five ten years later, and it's really scaled up. And that that's where they learned. You know it was on the job training and. Mm -hmm. The opportunity usually presents itself right there, and it's you take the risk to go uh, step out of your comfort zone and go start a business to try to address it versus just keep keep where you are. And uh, I don't know. So I'm hopeful uh, maybe more map anything will start popping up here in Charlotte. That'd be great. I, I think there's a there's a couple. I, I've been doing some 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 investing early you know in, in early stage companies, and it's it's really amazing to me some of the. So some of the talent that we're seeing, you know, I still prefer investing in someone's company who's raised money and exited before. But I've, right. I've actually I'm looking at a couple right now that are run by very young founders and probably in the 24 to 25 year old wow. range. And, and and it's really exciting to, to see. And, and, and they need help. They need uh, advice from a little bit of advice from me. But more of the value I'm adding to these companies is just connecting them into the network of of other you know, forty somethings with a little, little more gray hair like right. us, <laughs> right? And uh, and it, it, it's it's fun to see that that start to evolve. I, I still think it needs to happen faster than than it does here in Charlotte. But uh, that's great to hear. That the only company I've personally invested in uh, was run by a guy who was still in college, and I met him at the student portion of a venture capital competition. It was actually here in Charlotte, and it, it definitely was one of those. You, you, I've gone through a lot of pitches. I've seen a lot of presentations. This guy blew me away at 22. Yeah. Uh, he was, you know, more dynamic, more impactful than, you know, guys have been at that for 25 years. You and think back to what you were doing at 22. Oh, at least I know exactly. I do. When I was sober. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and to this day, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's a great, a great guy. He's very mission driven. He, he's just a much deeper thinker and still like, uh, to this day, it's it's investing. It goes to that mantra of like you invest in a person, not in the business. And well, Austin said, "But you know, invest in the jockey, not the horse." Yeah, I yeah, exactly, that's, that's so exactly. True. So I would love. I, I think you're right though. When it comes to early stage investing, it's great to hear you found some you know guys doing it for the first time that are worth putting some capital behind, and you can stretch your dollar these days, especially in the software uh, development space. I I agree. Yeah, gone are the days of paying for 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 Sun servers and Oracle licensing and. So. Yep, you can get that minimum viable product out for not much money. 
Now you're speaking my language. Well, look, Andy, I, re- I really appreciate this. Uh, Thank it, you. you know, it's, uh, it's always good to connect. Like I said, I like to pick your brain over a couple of drinks, so I figured why not record it and you, share it with the, with the millions will, of listeners that I have. <laughs> I will brag on you, John. You're one of the best connected guys. Uh, every time we get together, I, I enjoy it. We always run out of time before I run out of things to talk about. I'm honored you would let me waste your time here on this podcast and, <laughs> and fill up this space. So thank you very much. Well, well, thank you. It's funny you mentioned the, the connected because I've, I've had a couple of, of friends comment, you're, you're, you're putting out too many of these podcasts, you're going <laughs> to run out of people. And I'm like, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know just how many people I talk to about this shit. For whatever reason, surface. everybody lets me talk to them. So this is great. <laughs> and I, do you do this mobile on the road? I've, I've done it a couple of times. So I did Austin's from his, from his, um, his house. I did, uh, that, that's probably the only one I've done completely remotely. I've yeah. gone to people's office. I did, you did it from one where the, the interviewer was remote, right? Like you were, I've done two, I've, I've yeah. published one that was Scott lean, uh, the, the founder of Grandpad, And I just did one last night with, uh, with, uh, the head of a medical group and he's my personal doctor. And we got to just nerd out on, um, cardiovascular disease supplements, yeah. meditation, sauna, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that, that, that was a lot of fun, but yeah, so, so the idea is I'll do it from wherever right now I'm doing it from my home studio, which is where we're coming from. We're constantly investing. You can see we've been upgrading the cameras. We've gotten Taylor involved. We've gotten a, a gentleman named Todd involved. Ultimately I'm in the process of talking with a friend of mine about, opening up a, a professional studio that we actually sell to other folks and do the services around nice. the editing and everything. Yeah. Um, that probably, I think we're going to get going in the next couple of months here. Uh, but, but, but the idea is, uh, the more important thing than the, pr- the quality of the production to me is the quality of the interview, the quality of the information that it gives to, to, to the people uh, listening. I, I'm being sincere when I say, John, uh, when, when I talk with you, I'd never have more, do you know, follow-ups than when I talk with you. <laughs> like you, you are the most, it, you have the most interesting network of people. I have no doubt that you can go for years if all you want to do is create <laughs> podcasts and never run out of people to talk to and content. So well, we'll see. I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. It's great to sit down and talk with folks like yourself. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. I Thank really you. appreciate your time. Thanks for coming by. And I'm going to have you back again soon. Maybe when the recession I look forward hits. to it. I, well, I want to see the studio once you get the studio up and running. Absolutely. All Absolutely. Right. All right. Cheers, Andy. Thank Thank you. you.